Hello and welcome back to the Baseball Trade Values Podcast. My name is Joshua Iverson and I am the Associate Editor of BaseballTradeValues.com, joined as always by founder and owner John Bitzer. John, how are you holding up? This has been a, an eventful and quite disappointing couple weeks in baseball, so how are how are you keeping it together? I'm not good, Josh. I'm not good. Um, you know, I had a little ray of hope there. You know, when we had the uh, the all-nighters, you know, especially that last Monday night, I was thinking, oh, we're going to, yeah, they're going to get there. And then everyone was just so deflated uh, when the Tuesday afternoon thing happened and, like, nope, the owner countered with nothing even close after all that. That was so discouraging. Everybody just kind of let the air out of the balloon. Everyone was hoping for baseball by some miracle and then nothing. So part one, disappointment just as a fan. Part two, disappointment as a, you know, a guy like with you who runs a baseball website and like things are getting, it's getting old now. And, and part three, anger. And mostly I have to say, admit, anger at the owners. And, you know, I started off trying to be objective about this, but it's hard to be objective now because I really do think it's the owners that are holding this, this up. But that, I believe the players have really kind of, you know, compromised quite a bit, but the owners are, are holding very firm and unreasonably so. And so um, I think that's where the blame lies for this. You know, they are, in fact, the ones who issued the lockout, you know, for leverage. They are the ones who are holding fast and they're not budging. And it's 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 the cause of everything. Um, It doesn't help that they're losing the PR as well. Well, and, you know, the owners, um, you know, Rob Manford has his own issues, but you, you don't cancel the season and start laughing and joking. You know, that's not a good look. Uh, and then the and then the uh, Evan Drellich report that came out a few days ago, where there were four owners and he named them, who were adamantly against even raising the CBT competitive balance tax by even what it is today, and you know noted that even if it went a little higher, there might be even more opposition. And so that's just like, ugh. I'm going to pause there and let you comment on those points first. All right. Yeah. Um, real quick before I do, just want to. Give a quick uh, a framework of this episode. Later on, I promise we're not going to talk about this the whole time because that would be depressing for everyone involved. Yeah, yeah. Um, later on in the episode, we're going to uh, be talking about our prospects. Um, we're going to be talking more about the prospect valuation process, some recent updates, and then we're going to get into uh, our kind of farm system rankings based on trade value. So that will be a lot of fun it will <laughs> it will hopefully be more fun than this uh this beginning part but i think we we both need the therapy of talking this out and sharing our our miseries on this subject together um and and hopefully you know we can provide some interesting takes on it uh to some to that, that some listeners might not have considered or or you know, provide reassurement to other listeners who have considered these kinds of things and are hoping that they're not the only ones thinking this way and, and whatever. Um, and, and this is this is a, a space for us to kind of air our our disappointments, our our grief at the at the f- first few weeks of the season that are either lost or in jeopardy right now. Um, so yeah, that that's the that's the plan for this episode. A couple other things we'll hit on in between, but that's the uh, basic framework here. Um, getting back to, you know, the lockout and the CBA and all of that, there's so many different 
ways I could go about this. Uh, so d different talking points I could hit on right now. You know, there's the whole PR angle of it, of where it was very clear. I mean, it should have been more clear at the time, but absolutely crystal clear in hindsight that the uh, marathon Monday night that led to reports that a deal was getting close and led to them extending the deadline into Tuesday and all that optimism crystal clear in hindsight that, that was entirely league driven or if not if not necessarily entirely league driven very very heavily league driven and very targeted leaks to reporters like uh well I guess we don't need to mention any names but to, to specific reporters who they knew would just you know go ahead and get that out first for the optimism, get it out for the clicks, that kind of thing, without verifying and saying, hey, the uh, the league seems to believe this is close. Maybe I should check with the uh, other negotiating party in this, in this deal and see if they agree with that sentiment before I go ahead and fire this off to my hundreds of thousands of Twitter followers. That probably should have been a consideration, and it seemed like it wasn't for a handful of reporters. Um, and, and so it seems pretty clear that it was a PR ploy by the league that, Maybe some, maybe there were people within the league that thought this is the offer that gets it done. Uh, but regardless, they aired it as if it was a done deal and it was going to be done the next day. Meanwhile, the players are out here saying, wait, what? We're not even close on any of our core economic issues here. There's still a huge gap to bridge in, in the luxury tax, CBT threshold, um, in minimum salary, and in the pre-arbitration bonus pool we still got a long way to go on these. Why are you saying a deal is almost done? Plus there were reports that came out specifically from Ross Stripling um, that at that kind of 11th hour there, when they're all up late trying to haggle over the deal that Monday night, uh, the league was trying to slip in a whole bunch of other, other language and other changes into those last proposals. Um, and hopefully hoping to get them under the players noses while they were tired and had been negotiating all day. So that's not, ideal <laughs> at all in a negotiation like this and then it, what it comes to is i think a lot of people correctly identified it for what it was but there are a significant number of people that read into it as oh the players backed out at, on on the second day and oh they changed their minds they're holding out for more now they're the greedy ones now it's their fault that the season's being delayed and that's exactly what the league wanted people to think not that not that public opinion i think should matter too much to either side I, I i would guess it matters more to the players just slightly because i mean the owners seem to have never cared about public opinion otherwise a whole bunch of the decisions that they've made they would not have made <laughs> um if, if they cared about public opinion we wouldn't have had any games canceled this thing would have been wrapped up months ago uh so i don't think it's a huge deal but it is it is a real thing that's happening um th th that kind of pr battle Mm -hmm. uh waging waging raging i'm sorry <laughs> uh do, do you have anything you want to add on that uh no i think i think that's spot on um you know where we're at now is you know i know they're going to meet again uh as we record this on a saturday they, they reports are uh saw ken rosenthal tweeted they're gonna meet again on sunday um you know, and there's some conflicting reports that uh, say the the players may be willing to talk about the 14-team playoff format, which is what the owners want, and which is probably the uh, players' best uh, negotiating chip. I don't want to get too far into the details. I just want to sort of take a step back and sort of take a, a broader view of this. Um, the players, it became clear to them that they 
kind of got screwed, to be honest, in the last couple of CB, uh, CBAs, and they're dead set on on coming away with at least a compromise, at least a fair deal this time, and not like, oh, we're going to get screwed again. A lot has changed in the last 10, 10, 15, even 20 years, where you know the ownership side of the management side has gotten much more efficient about paying players less on the whole um because they're using younger players using a lot more pre-r players and i mentioned this because we run a trade value site and what we're really doing is showing you where the surplus value is another way of looking at that is saying where are the players underpaid the most and you see it it's very clear and you see other other experts talking about this as well they're underpaid in their first three years where they're getting league minimum for the most part and in their next three years where they're getting you know arbitration money which is really the formula that we use is 25 percent of market value for the first year 40 percent second year 60 percent the third year so it's you know they're leaving a lot of money on the table for those first six years and if you add to the fact that they probably spent at least three years in the minors, that's nine years before they finally hit that pot of gold payday when they get to free agency. And oh, by the way, now things have changed in free agency where if you're over 30, you're not going to get as much. And so that pot of gold that you fought for and you thought maybe you were getting is probably not happening anymore. And so they're really taking a stand now because they basically they're basically saying, look, we're getting um, we're getting squeezed on both ends, on the front end of our careers and on the back end of our careers. And so, and yes, the elites, the Scherzers, and, you know, and the Corey Seekers will make a lot of money, but there's a whole bunch of people in between who don't have jobs yet and who are not going to get that kind of money. And so they're holding out for sort of the bulk of the players who are underpaid. And we can see that in our trade values. And so I think that's a fair fight. Yeah, absolutely. And that's where you see them fighting right now. They, they pretty early on since it was... Uh, it was broadcast as a non-starter for the league. They pretty early on dropped their, you know, age-based free agency ask um, and uh, additional arbitration year ask and, and things like that. Um, and now they've kind of refocused on, okay, how do we get the money to the the, the youngest players, the, the ones who are making the least and providing the most value? How do we get them paid uh, accordingly? And I don't think I don't think either of the proposals that are currently on the table even from the union um of either the arbitration bonus pool or pre-arbitration bonus pool excuse me or the league minimum adjustments i don't think either of those quite adequately compensate those players for their production but they're a huge step in the right direction um i, I was looking at it the other day and currently the increases to uh to the major league minimum since I believe it was 2012 that I was looking at um, they, the, the, the 2021 salary did not keep up with inflation for over that time period, 2020, 2012 to 2021, the league minimum increase was less than inflation. That's not good. The, the new numbers that they're looking at, you know, 700,000 range roughly. And, and depending on how they increase from there, that is an increase over inflation, which is a, a good thing. But that's an important factor. And then you look at the competitive balance thresholds that are really seeming like, along with the playoffs, are the big holdup right now. The league was pushing for the longest time of these negotiations and didn't really start to come off it until the last week or so. They were pushing to have those remain identical, remain exactly the same, not even keep up with inflation whatsoever, let alone keep up with the massive increases in revenue that we discussed on the last episode from all of those different, you know, from the, the real estate around the stadium and, and all these other, and, and, you know, betting is now a thing. And so uh, the big TV deals, 
So let alone making sure the players can receive because because the CBT functions as a soft salary cap. A lot of teams treat it like that. How many times do we hear the Yankees making all these weird deals and, and throwing prospects in so the other team will eat the entire salary just to stay under that luxury tax number? And that's the Yankees we're talking about. Um, <laughs> that's how this so all it, started, it's, it's, by the way. Yes. Yeah. So so it's basically a, it's a basically a salary cap. Owners are treating it like that. General managers are treating like that, et cetera. And you're saying not only is this number not going to go up so that players receive the the correct, uh, the, the same portion of, or players, excuse me, players can receive the same portion of the revenue that they always have. It, instead, it, it won't even go up to account for inflation, increased cost of living, that kind of thing. And so that's, the biggest holdup to me where like, like that's the most obvious spot to me where it's like, okay, these owners are not budging. They are very clearly the problem. And there's a hundred other spots that I could point out that are like that. And I made plenty yeah. of those points in the past, but that's the biggest one right now. And it's like, you guys really haven't been serious this entire time. Not, not even to mention, you know, the whole 43 days at the beginning of the lockout thing where the, yeah. the league did not send a counter proposal. It, it it becomes more and more clear every day that the issue is with them. And I'm like you, I, I try to remain as objective and kind of impartial as possible, even though I am generally pro player. Uh, but I, I don't see any grounds for blaming the union for anything this time around, except for maybe not being aggressive enough. I think you could even say, I mean, where we're looking like we're headed isn't necessarily radical changes. And I've, I, tweeted it out a couple times but i think we could see ourselves and this is this is purely speculative so i won't go too far down this road but i think we could see ourselves you know once this cba expired kind of facing a similar issue another lockout slash strike type situation another just continued labor strife because even if they the two sides do meet somewhere in the middle of where their most recent proposals are i don't think the players will be that happy with it in five years i think they're need to be more significant changes for them to really be happy in the long term so i think this might be the first kind of battle in a really long labor war that wages the next few decades and who knows what that does to the sport yeah well there's a whole that's yeah <laughs> what what's happening to the sport is a whole other topic um you know and not not to open that losing, can of worms <laughs> yeah i mean you're obviously you know risking loss of fans you've got other issues with attracting young fans because of pace of play and other issues and so to add this to the mix is just like oh my god just baseball this is just you know, shooting itself in the foot right and left okay yeah so i just want to make a point that um relative to other sports baseball players are the most underpaid you know, in terms of their production, in terms of like relative to the revenues, they're already the most underpaid players. Um, and then you you add to the fact that they're not even getting increases relative to inflation, and it's like a double insult. And there's no, you know, I've said this in the past. Kyler Murray chose football because he liked football, but you know, he got a big contract right after the draft. You know, as soon as he signed it. And, uh, you know, if he chosen baseball, he would have had to spend three years on a bus and then another three years making league minimum and then another three, you know, he has waited nine years to get paid. So like it, all these other athletes that 
could be you know talented enough to play baseball or choosing other sports because they're not getting paid as much and there are other reasons too the game is slower and so on um but you know the 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 game has real problems and the league has real problems and i think the easiest way to solve this is just for the owners to recognize this you know they're they're treating it like and i i I, i'm going to speak business talk a little bit because i have a background in business um they're treating it like a cash cow so uh, from an investor's point of view there's a growth company you think of a high-tech company who's like innovative and growing and then there's sort of mature you know companies that have been around for a long time and they're just managing to the bottom line just trying to sort of you know steady eddie keeping the profits flowing and that's what that's the way they're managing baseball they're not growing it at all they're just trying to keep the cost down and so many of the owners seem to think that way and i think that's the crux of the problem but but john didn't you know that major league baseball teams are not profitable that owning a major league baseball team is not a good investment don't you know that they're losing oh right every year yes i, I, I heard that, from, that i think it was rob manford who said that yes uh-huh so trust <laughs> yeah trusted source on that <laughs> oh that's that's the other when, when you talk about adding insult to it saying something like that when all of these you know all of the forbes franchise valuations exist and okay you know those are just kind of valuations the teams don't open their books so how are we supposed to know the exact numbers which on a side note the teams could always open their books if these things that they're saying were actually true hint they're not right but on top of that you have you know the the royals selling for how many billions of dollars was that and that's that's the kansas city royals that is Mm -hmm one of the least valuable organizations in baseball you would think right it's mm-hmm. it's given their history and given their location and all of that so i mean it's nonsense when you all of these numbers are publicly available and they're treating the players and the public like they're idiots who can't do a quick google search it's yeah oh that's another another frustration <laughs> okay all right so where do we go now is the question i mean we may be you know, maybe have to sort of brace ourselves for a long sort of period of trench warfare, you know, of where like neither side is giving, you know, because neither side wants to be the one that breaks. Um, part of me thinks that that's going to happen well into, say, June, maybe even July before, you know, the revenues really start to hit one side or the other, the loss of revenues, I should say. That's one theory. The other theory is, and I know this is starting to, people start to talk about this, you know, if because they're canceling games now, um, the players are going to, there is another fight on their hands. The players are going to want to insist they get paid for a full season because it wasn't their fault. They're not the ones who issued the lockout. And then the owners are going to argue that, of course. Oh, we made you an offer. You didn't agree. So, you know, that's going to be a whole other thing. You know, they remember how long it took them to figure that out in the pandemic year of 2020. That's another sort of wrinkle. Like, and so, so there's one school of thought now that's emerging that says, okay, nobody wants to deal with that headache on top of the other headaches. Like, are you going to pay you know for the full season or not full season there's service time questions there as well um so you know that there's a logic that says you know what we don't want to deal with that headache let's just get this thing done now so we can at least say it's a full season or close enough to it if it's 155 games whatever then that's close enough to a full season we'll just pay for a full season so there's a school of thought that says there's emergency now to try to get the deal done for that reason there's another school of thought that says nope neither side is budging and we're here for the long run i don't know which way it's going to go though yeah and a couple points i'd like to add on to that is is one if there is a deal in the next couple weeks i think that ask for the play by the players to you know that that kind of demand to get their full salary either 
it becomes easier to say like, yeah, okay, we only missed a week of games. We we can use that as a negotiating tool and say, fine, we won't ask for the full 162 of salary. You guys can keep that week of pay or whatever. Or it just becomes an easier one to kind of agree on both from a financial standpoint and, you know, optics based of like, all right, yeah, it was a week of games, whatever. If we get two months down the road and, and the players are still insisting on being paid 162 games worth of salary for what was what becomes like a 100 or an 80 game season that gets tougher for them to realistically demand even if you know they're somewhat justified in doing it and saying like we didn't choose for there not to be games right now we're being locked out so why shouldn't they pay us so even if that is like justifiable it gets a lot harder to see them successfully getting 162 game salaries for an 80 or 100 game season something like that um another popular theory slash rumor is that you know the the owners view and especially some of the smaller market teams they view april and may as they're just very they're not very profitable months you know kids are still in school the weather's colder in a lot of places um, so they're not big revenue months for these teams in terms of like ticket sales and concessions and, and all of that. And so they might be more willing to lose that time. Um, another thing that's been thrown around is the RSNs, regional sports networks, where after a certain point, which usually would be in like late April, early May, something like that, um, there's there's like a rebate system where they they would end up owing the rsn's money i believe i don't know the exact logistics of that but basically there's a there's a point where it becomes significantly like like they have kind of a grace period if we lose a few weeks at the beginning here the owners do but uh after a certain point there it becomes more costly to them to lose games so that's another like kind of date to circle in the calendar of of like that might make sense then that's if that could be what motivates them to to get back to the table to make a move i think it's uh, briefly, I think it's encouraging that they are going to be meeting uh, tomorrow, Sunday. Uh, this, like like you mentioned, this is being recorded Saturday. Probably won't be published until sometime Sunday. So who knows? Maybe they signed a CBA already by the time you're hearing this. And this is just a, <laughs> a, a lot of talking about nothing. But highly doubt that one. It's good at least that they're meeting. There was probably some fear about um, about you know both sides going into their own corners and not talking for another three weeks or something. Um, but I think the, there is another piece of motivation on the league side to get something going here, and that's that the way that they canceled the first set of games, they just canceled the first two series, right? The first like seven games of the season for most teams. And that doesn't give them a whole lot of room to work with. We're looking at like, unless somehow a deal is agreed to on Sunday, Rob Manfred's going to need to get back up to a podium or send out another memo or whatever saying we're going to cancel another week of games right now. And so unless he unless they change their strategy and they start to do two weeks at a time or something like that, that's some pretty strong motivation being like, all right, the, every week that we don't get something done is a week that we have to go and tell these people another week's worth of games are canceled, and that's not good publicity either. So I think that could be kind of a hidden motivation here oh, that yeah. – they probably don't want to every Monday have to go bring the bad news again. Maybe Rob Manfred doesn't seem to care all that much, but that is a I very, right. very fair point. <laughs> <laughs> he's just practicing his golf swing. He's like, and he's joking around like, okay, whatever. Uh, yeah, no. Uh, okay. 
Well, I maybe do we have, should move on oh, to... I'm oh, sorry, go ahead. I, I just do have a couple last things that are a little bit more relevant to you know us as a trade value site um, that have come out from the last couple of days of negotiations. So enough of the, you know... The, the the stronger emotional part and more of here's some here's some news here's some things that might actually have an impact um first up was that there have been multiple reports that teams have asked mlb to cancel the rule five draft this year um so the rule five draft the major league portion could not happen uh during the lockout uh, the minor league portion of the rule five draft did happen back in in december excuse me uh but the major league portion could not and now they're in kind of a there's a sticky situation here where typically those drafts would have happened in December in the winter meetings. And then after that is when a lot of these players would have gone to, you know, some of the winter leagues or a lot of these minor leaguers have shown up for camp. Uh, the ones yeah, uh, have shown up for, you know, minor league spring training camps, which are still ongoing right now. And so the question there is that typically the, the the teams that the teams decided to protect their players before that data was available before seeing how they performed in a winter league or how what kind of shape they looked in showing up to spring training camp whatever uh, so those decisions were made at that point but teams that were drafting if the rule five draft was held next week uh, those teams that are drafting have more information that the original protecting team did not at the time so kind of creates an information imbalance um, and teams are hoping to just delay it a year, suspend it for this year. And that, that seems to make some sense. But on the other hand, it's it would be really disappointing for the players. And I think that could be a reason that and it's something that needs to be collectively bargained. The union would need to agree to skip the Rule 5 this year. And, and who knows? It could be a bargaining chip for them that they give up. It could be, you know, hey, just logistically, yeah, it doesn't seem to make much sense. It could be that, you know, Rule 5 draft selections might stop a team from signing a free agent and obviously the union has to hold the free agents best interests in mind as well uh, but it's it's really rough for the players because the whole point of the rule five draft is to get prospects who have been kind of neglected in their organizations it's to get them major league chances major league salary for however many games that they stick on the roster or maybe they're a mark canna and they stick with the team for a while and akil badu garrett whitlock all those guys um so it would be really disappointing and, and I'm just a, I love the Rule 5 draft. It's really fun. <laughs> um, so it would be disappointing to me if that were canceled. I It remains to be seen if the two sides will be able to agree on it. It seems like the league is pretty, pretty convinced that it's the right move for them. And so it's just how highly does the union value that? And is it something they give up in negotiations? Yeah. So we talked about some of the domino effects in previous episodes, you know, We've lost three months now of an off season where there could have been free agent signings and trades, and the Rule Five Draft was part of that. And by the way, there's a bunch of pros, a whole bunch of players who are in their arbitration years who don't know what they're making because they haven't had their arbitration hearings yet. So, like, there's in you know guys who don't have teams. So there's a lot more. I would imagine you could say pressing matters to deal with since we lost the three months of of off season. The Rule Five Draft was cool in a way but it's probably not the most important issue and so i think they're trying to consolidate the whatever time they have left once the lockout finally ends there's going to be a mad scramble of you know delayed off-season you know activity 
And so the Rule Five draft is, I think, going to get lost in shuffle for all the reasons you mentioned as well. I think the, I think there might be a little bit of disappointment on the player's side because, I mean, the whole point of it, as you mentioned, is for a player who's been kind of like creeping up the minors but may not have a chance to make the majors suddenly get picked by a team that says, "Yeah, we'll put you on a major league roster." And so it's sort of, it's a way for them to get unstuck. And so you're going to leave these sort of, you know, Rule Five eligible players kind of still stuck in their in their situation. And then come next year, there'll be a whole new batch of players who were not protected, you know, from the draft who were added to 40s, and they're going to be so like next year's draft will be like double populated, which create its own issues. Um, so I can see it. I can see a point from the player side that says, yeah, that's no, that's not good. But given the overall context, I think there are more important issues. So my hunch is that that's gonna that's gonna I think the front offices are right. I think they're going to just, you know, work it out that they don't have one this year. Yeah, unfortunately, I'll still, I'll still keep my fingers crossed. Yes. Um, one other thing that more details about actually came out today um, was MLB's international draft proposal, and there's a whole lot I could get into here. The most relevant thing for our site is that as part of this proposal, draft picks in the international draft would be tradable. So. Welcome to another potential Woo-hoo. feature of the site down the road. Uh, that, that'll be fun to try and figure out what one of those is worth. International oh draft boy. pick one, international draft pick two. Let's put a number on them. <laughs> it's a 20-round draft, so. Oh, oh, my gosh. Okay, then. Um, yeah, this this is a very complex proposal to solve, uh, I guess, a problem. So it's it's been kind of dunked on. A lot on Twitter today, uh, at least on my timeline. I don't know if it's made it to everybody's timeline. I, I follow a very specific set of people. But the problem internationally, the issue is that, the biggest issue I would say, is that teams agree to deals with, with international prospects when they're still children, when they're, you know, 12, 13 years old. And so that leads to this whole line of cultural issues where you need to perform to keep that deal intact. And so there's so much pressure on you because that money that you're going to get from that deal, you can't get it until you are an eligible international free agent at 15 or 16 or 17, whenever that ends up being for you. But, and your, your, your family might need that money. It's life-changing money for a lot of these guys. And so you have all of the wrong incentives in place to a, just only focus on baseball, no education and B, there's been, you know, performance enhancing drug issues as a result of it, of I, uh, all that pressure to perform and, and make sure you get that money. And now it, it's not to say that that kind of those kind of issues would go away with any system because there's we see that, you know, we see that um, stateside as well. Domestically, that's the word I was looking for. <laughs> uh, but it's a much lesser lesser extent. There's, I believe, drug testing before uh, you are qualified for the first year player draft, um, the, the amateur draft uh, domestically, but it's all, it's it's being framed by MLB as there's some moral issues that need to be addressed for the good of these, of these international players, these kids, and this draft will be a way to do so. When in reality, it's it's the whole you know the meme of we're we're all wondering who could have done this that thing <laughs> it's it's the league themselves who are abusing the system and not they they have rules in place that aren't being enforced and aren't being followed that is leading to these kids being abused to these kids being put in this situation agreeing to these deals before they're adults anywhere near adults yeah um so so it's really 
it's the PR of it is, oh, we need to fix the system for the players, for the kids. But reality is they just want more control. They want more cost control over how much can be spent internationally, even though their current system already does a decent job at cost control. Um, they, they claim that they want more parity, more, more fairness in, in the international uh, signing system, which I don't think is necessarily needed. I mean, it, it's kind of a crapshoot anyway. And you see, look at a team like the A's where they've signed, you know, Lazaro Armenteros was a huge name and he got a really big bonus. And Robert Poisson or Robert Poisson, one of the two, he also got a huge bonus. And both of those guys are not looking like huge prospects anymore. Poisson still has a chance here, but Armenteros is off the map completely. These these guys are even more lottery tickets than a normal than a domestic prospect because they're so much younger younger and there's so much less data available on them so much less scouting possible of them so i don't think that's a good argument for it i think what this would amount to long term is again just a way for the league to be able to limit salaries at at certain levels at certain stops they'd be able to limit the signing bonuses down the road and all it does is take agency away from the players. Right now, the players can choose what team to sign with. Juan Soto's younger brother signed with the Nationals in the last free agent, uh, in international free agent class. That's cool. <laughs> and just in general, teams can go where, where they trust uh, the scouting, where they trust their development, where they want to maybe play someday down the line. And this system would take that away. So I think it's it would be kind of a shame if this is another thing that ends up getting treated uh, by the players as a bargaining trip, bargaining chip, because they kind of have to to address their more important issues. Um, I have seen some reports that um, international players who are a part of the current union are are pretty strongly opposed to this system. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, I haven't studied it enough, but I have a, a few thoughts. One is um, the way it's working right now is it it's got to change. I mean, you should not be making handshake deals with 12 year olds. And what happens is the adults are obviously, you know, I mean, there's been some money skimming, which has been well reported. There's, you know, been, you know, uh, some really sketchy people involved and, you know, it's, 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 it's not a good, you got to clean that up. Um, that's point number one for the sake of the kids, if nothing else. Um, Point number two is there's you mentioned that, yes, anybody could do that. But the reality is a lot of teams do it better than other teams. And I think that may be behind the scenes. One of the issues is like, you know, the Orioles never had a, a international development for some reason. They just never bothered to. And only in the last couple of years have they even started. Uh, the Yankees and Rays, it, you know, in the book Future Value by Kevin Dell Eric Lomenhagen, I highly recommend that book. They go in depth about like who have the most sophisticated you know, um, development uh, organizations within, like, you know, the Dominican Republic, for example, and Venezuela. Like, some teams have prioritized that because they know it's very cost-effective to sort of gather the young talent there, develop them, and then either they become stars or regulars or trade ships. And so um, they called out the Yankees and Rays as being very, very aggressive in this area, whereas other teams are way behind them. So there's a lot of imbalance, a lot of variation there. And so maybe their idea is, you know, if we make it a draft, that'll sort of get everybody on the same page. I don't know if that's true. I've got to study it more, but I suspect that's what's going on behind the scenes. All right, fair. And I, I will second the recommendation of future value. Yeah. Um, okay, just super briefly, last couple things I want to hit on here. Um, one, earlier, John mentioned the four owners who were even against the $220 million 
CBT threshold, which the players are pushing for at least 230. So it's they're already getting four. The owners are already getting four no votes on the 220 million, which could be a sign of, of poor things to come. But those four owners, just 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 in case people were wondering, <laughs> Angels owner Artie Moreno, D-backs Ken Kendrick, Reds Bob Castellini, and Tigers Chris Illich. So do with that information what you would wish. Um, I would like to offer one little bit of I don't know if optimism is the right word, but maybe maybe something to look forward to is that I think once this thing is agreed to, if it is ever agreed to, <laughs> we're going to see a week, week and a half, two weeks of just insanity. Remember the the crunch to sign free agents and a couple trades and everything in the week or so leading up to the lockout. I think we're going to get that again and potentially with more trades now. So that is definitely something to look forward to from all of this. Um, and then the last thing I wanted to mention was just that I really hope we've been able to provide a pretty informed discussion of this. Um, I, I watch and listen to and, and all of that. I, I, I follow a lot of baseball content in my free time. Shocking, I know. Um, and I'm, <laughs> I've actually <laughs> fallen into baseball cards recently, <laughs> which nice. I know, mistake. Uh, it's, a, it's an expensive decision, but, <laughs> but I've doing that with my free time during the lockout the last couple months. And it's been very frustrating, very disappointing to see the kind of coverage of the lockout that some of some baseball card creators give, you know, some YouTubers don't always have the most informed opinions, informed takes on it. And sometimes they spread some misinformation and it's really disappointing because they have audiences and, and those audiences are now being told things that aren't necessarily true and that paint things in a different light. So, I mean, I am as tired as anybody is about hearing about lockout type stuff, but hopefully our discussion here has been informed and educational, helpful. Um, and, and if there are any, Anything you think we've missed, any inaccuracies, anything like that, please let us know and we'll we'd happily correct it in the show notes in the next episode, whatever. But um, yeah, I'm hoping at least <laughs> at least our coverage, even if it's if it's still depressing because all this lockout stuff is, at least hopefully it's helpful and informative. Okay. All right, we have a whole episode to get to, so let's fly through a couple of these uh, smaller things we want to hit on so we can get to the prospects because that stuff's going to be fun. So first of all wanted to bring up an article that John and I worked on, mainly John. I helped out with some of the behind-the-scenes stuff. Uh, but John posted an article last week asking, how accurate are Jim Bowden's trade proposals? So Jim Bowden, former general manager, now writer uh, for The Athletic. And for years now, he's been doing pretty constant you know, trade market coverage of either proposing his own deals or evaluating deals from, from users, from followers on Twitter, from readers, etc., um, and he's had some opinions in those articles and some proposals that don't pass the eye test, let alone the numbers that, that we've, the model that we've developed. Um, and so John had the idea of let's audit him. <laughs> let's see how accurate his trades have actually been, uh, compared to our model and compared to what's happened in real life. So, uh, John, I don't know if you want to give just a quick summary of the article, of the findings, how we did it, etc. Um, and then that article will be linked in the show notes of this episode. You can also just find it on the website. 
on baseballtradevalues.com. If you go to the articles header, it's, it's going to be the second one up there after this podcast episode article. Um, but yeah, John, feel free to take yeah. it away. So, yeah. so what happened was I got a number of comments from people saying, oh, like every time he, Jim Bowden proposed something on the uh, athletic as part of like, okay, after the lockout ends, here are the trades I'd like to see. And like, a lot of people are like groaning and making fun of him and like, can someone please check this guy? And so like, it finally occurred to me to say, you know what, who better than to check him than us, <laughs> you know, because we have actually a model that we've built and that we've, you know, tracked. And so we, at our, in our model, we've tracked it since October, um, excuse me, August, 2019, it's two and a half years of trades in that time. There have been 278 that we've logged. Our model has hit on 265 of those within you know, an acceptable range of 1.7 million, give or take. And so we thought, okay, we're auditing ourselves, so why don't we audit Bowden just to see how close he gets? And there were two ways we sort of approached it. One is, first, let's see how we did relative to our model. Like, if you think our model is a good enough proxy for the market as a whole, let's plug in his trades and see how he did. So we actually went through the exercise of looking at all his articles and all trade proposals in them, and then put them on a spreadsheet, figuring out what our values were at that time, going back to 2019, like I said, and then figure out how we did. So against our model, he, you know, there were 115 trades that he proposed. He got right 42 of them for uh, an acceptance rate of 45.2%. That's less than the coin flip. And his variance was 20.4. In other words, he was off by 20 million on average with each one. And the way to look at that is if you were actually a GM, a real GM making a trade based on one of his articles, you would risk losing 20 million in value with each one. I'm guessing that's probably not very good. That's <laughs> what you're thinking. Okay. So, but then we took it a step further and we said, okay, actually a lot of those trades didn't happen. They were just theoretical. So what if we actually matched the ones that did happen? because we have real market value numbers on those. And so we logged those and turns out there was 47 of them. How many of those did he get right? And the answer is 24. So just a barely over 50%. And the average variance was 17.5. So once again, he's around a coin flip and the variance was, you know, any GM would risk losing 17.5 million. Uh, we then double checked our model to see on those particular trades, and we're talking big stars here. We're talking Arenado, Lindor, and so on. Um, how did we do? And those particular ones, there were 29 of them, because we have one instance of each one, and we got 24 of them right. So that's an 82.8% acceptance rate. Our average variance was 5.5, which is acceptable given that these are higher value big name players. So comparing apples to apples on that one, Bowden got 51% right. We got close to 83% right. His variance was 17.5, ours was 5.5. So um, we think he's off <laughs> pretty, but pretty substantially. Um, and so we've scored it. And then we sort of go into a little bit of reasoning why we think so. Um, I won't get too far into that, but basically we point out some inconsistencies. Like there was one instance where back when uh, Nolan Arenado was first being rumored as a trade chip, um, we had his value at 27.7 at that time. This was early 2020. Um, Bowden had one extreme and then another extreme. You know, we had one extreme where the Dodgers would get a haul, uh, would get Arenado, and the Rockies would get a haul, like Evan Lux and Keeper Rees and Josiah Gray, and he was off by 105 million. And then another trade proposal in the same article said, no, actually, uh, it's all about money. And so he had the Cubs getting Arenado and getting some cash and giving up Jason Hayward, who's very negative, and Wilson Contreras. And so that one, 
you know, the Rockies would lose 90 million in value. So between the two of them, that's about a $200 million swing, which is ooh, <laughs> mm. completely inconsistent. And so uh, we also call him out on some other sort of things that he predicted that didn't happen. Some, some trades where there were prospects involved that uh, he didn't seem to have the latest information on. And so the long story short is uh, he's not doing too well relative to either our model or to the market as we've tracked it. And there doesn't seem to be any sort of clear methodology in his evaluations. Yep, it, it's a really fun article. Very well written by John, well put together. Highly recommend it. There's tons more information there that we haven't gotten to here. So go check it out. There's at the very bottom of the article, there's a link to the spreadsheet with all of the trades if you want to check those out each one of them that we logged of his and how they compared to the values. Um, I want to close out with a comment from a user that I particularly liked. This is from user Nikolai, who said, quote, we found no clear methodology in his evaluations, end quote. As a wrap-up statement, this is fact-based, generous, and damning all at the same time. And that's kind of what we were going for with this article. It's nothing, nothing um, um, malicious against Jim Bowden. He has a job and he does it uh, we just wanted to see objectively i guess object as objectively as we could get how well he has done at this specific part of his job um, compared to what our model says and i think the results are pretty clear indeed all right very quickly we have one featured trade this week uh, this is from user kxw who is very frequently using the site and frequently featured uh, this is a trade between the Cubs and the Marlins. It has the Cubs acquiring right-handed pitcher Sixto Sanchez at $20.9 in trade value. In exchange, the Marlins acquire outfielder Ian Happ at 18.2, right-handed reliever Rowan Wick at 1.6, and first base prospect Bryce Ball at 1.5. So it's 21.3 headed to the Marlins, 20.9 headed to the Cubs. And the logic here is that, uh, as, as was widely reported, uh, Derek Jeter has parted ways with the Marlins and potentially part of the reason there's been some disagreement, but potentially part of the reason was that before the lockout, he was under the impression the Marlins had a good chunk of money left to spend after the lockout, add another bat uh, that they that they very much need, uh, particularly in the outfield. And uh, according to Jeter's side of it or people close to Jeter or, or whoever you choose to, to listen to on this one, uh, some sources said that that money evaporated. And now there probably won't be big spenders after the lockout. Um, other reports had, no, that's not it at all. There's been some growing, a growing rift between Jeter and uh, Bruce Sherman, Marlins uh, owner. And so not, 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 not a clear story here, but kind of the motivation for this trade was that, yes, there might not be as much money available. So instead of being able to afford Nick Castellanos, Kyle Schwarber, Michael Conforto on a decent uh, free agent deal, that Ian Happ might be a better fit for the Marlins. And I think I could get behind that. He's a switch hitting outfielder, can play all three positions in the outfield, can also play a little bit of infield. I think that's a decent fit. He's kind of like a lot of trades have had Ketel Marte headed to the Marlins. He's like Ketel Marte if he could actually play the outfield. <laughs> and, and obviously not, not quite the hitter that Marte is, but yeah. it's, it's a better fit in my opinion. Similar profile, but a much better fit. Uh, they also add a reliever in Rowan Wick and... A, uh, a, a prospect in Bryce Ball. Interesting additions for them. Uh, and then the Cubs side of this is really, really interesting because it's Sixto Sanchez, and recently reports have come out that 
he is not progressing quite as well from his shoulder injury as the Marlins would have hoped, and maybe he's falling out of favor a bit there. He's reportedly not going to be ready right away. He's still recovering from that shoulder injury. Um, it's a bit uncertain, but then you remember the Cubs. Last trade deadline, were interested in acquiring uh, Tyler Glass now from the Rays, even though he's out for the majority of 2022 due to Tommy John surgery. And there's a very fair argument that it's kind of apples and oranges there because shoulders and elbows are very, very different. Shoulders can be a lot scarier than, than Tommy John, which is a pretty common procedure at this point, pretty trusted procedure. Um, additionally, Glass now is much more established than Sixto Sanchez. And to kind of top it all off, we've seen the Cubs surprisingly pushing a few chips in toward at least fielding a competitive team in 2022, you know, signing um, Marcus Stroman specifically. And so does it make sense for them to, in that same offseason, trade Ian Happ, one of their better hitters that's remaining, as well as Rowan Wick, one of their better relievers in the bullpen? Not sure it does. So I think this trade is being received with uh, adequately mixed results, <laughs> mixed opinions. Uh, the Cubs have 10 thumbs up to 9 thumbs down. The Marlins have 8 up to 14 down. I think it's very interesting to think about, and I, I agree with kind of the controversy over it that some people would see it as a win for, for these teams, and others, others would have uh, very valid reservations. So what's your take on it? Yeah, Dan? I thought it was really interesting because, look, Sixto Sanchez was a top prospect. He was the key uh, get from the Marlins' point of view um, when they traded Rio Muto to the Phillies. And he certainly started off like gangbusters. He's got amazing stuff, just an electric arm. But he's also been injured a lot. And because of that, his stock has started to drop. He used to be in the 50s and then the 40s, and now he's down to like 20. Um, and then because of this latest um, delay in his recovery, um, he's going to miss at least half of the 2022 season. And so now when you look at his timeline and you look at his record, he hasn't actually pitched since uh, early 2020. It will be over two years since he's pitched in a game if he even comes back healthy enough from this latest uh you know, surgery and some of the delays associated with it. So his stock has dropped. From the Marlins' point of view, on the one hand, they've got tons of young pitching, and they've already said publicly they're willing to give up some young pitching to fill their center field spot or any other hole. So it makes sense on paper, and I think it makes sense from the uh, Cubs' point of view because they can buy low on a guy with huge upside, you know, if, if he comes back healthy. And, you know, they're not giving up anything that is terribly important to their future. Hap's only got two more years of control, a reliever, you know, so, uh, you know, in Wick and um, in Bryce Ball is just sort of marginal prospect. So I, I don't think, you know, there's not a, it's not a high cost to pay for the Cubs to, to get potentially, you know, six years of a potential ace, albeit one who's oft injured. Um, and so the Marlins side, I think the reason for the down votes is because Hey, we're still on the on the upswing too. We don't want to give away a guy with that much upside. Oh, but he's injured a lot, so maybe. So it depends on on your timeline as well, from the Marlins' point of view. If you if you think you can actually be competitive in the next two years, maybe Ian Happ solves your problems in the outfield, in which case you know it makes some sense. And but if you think your timeline's a little bit farther away, then maybe not. Um, keep in mind with these CBA negotiations, it sounds like there's going to be at least 12 teams that make the playoffs, six from each league. So it might be easier to get another wild card. And who knows, we might even end up with 14 teams, and so you might even get a set, another chance there. Maybe seven teams from each league making the wild card. So Marlins could be on the bubble, in which case Hap might be a little bit more value from a win value point of view. So I can see an argument for both sides. Yeah, I actually like this a lot for the Marlins. 
um, if, if we are assuming that the money isn't there to sign a free agent outfielder. Uh, but even if it is, you know, there aren't any, we've talked about it before, there aren't any free agent center fielders really available, and Hap can play a decent center field. And so maybe he would be one of their better options there. So I I, I don't really see a massive issue with it for the Marlins, um, assuming they have kind of soured on Sanchez, and I think they have good reason to. I think it's a much bigger question mark for the Cubs, which is why I'm a little surprised to see the thumbs downs a little bit more lopsided, uh, more people seeming to dislike it from the Marlins than the Cubs, but maybe, maybe I'm not accurately reading the Sixto Sanchez situation, and, and obviously the, the sky's the limit for him if he is healthy. So I don't know. I, I like it, and I think it's a really good discussion. So thank you to KXW for submitting it. As usual, if you want to be featured on the podcast, just uh, submit a trade through the through the website through the simulator, and if enough people like it, it gets enough attention. John will feature it, and we'll talk about it on the show. So. There's that. Now, this is like the best time we've made on a, a podcast episode in months. Is, is that accurate? <laughs> I don't know, but let's keep going because we're on a roll. Yes, yes. I'm not, <laughs> not trying to jinx it. Not knocking on wood here, but we, we're before the one hour. Yeah, we're before the one hour mark, and we're going to talk about our main topic here. So, <sighs> prospects. I am going to throw this over to John because he presumably has uh, a, a few notes on what he wants to hit on first and then uh, talk about the prospects and then get into our rankings. So take it away. So we obviously publish how we sort of measure the values of our prospects on our site. And I just want to talk a little bit that, about that uh, some more and also give you a little ray of hope because, you know, what? without Major League Baseball playing right now in spring training, we do have minor leaguers in spring training. And there's always hope when you're looking at prospects. So that's fun. Prospects are fun. So let's talk about them and let's give ourselves a little hope for the future and see how these guys are doing. Um, there's been a lot of updates lately. You'll see, um, you'll notice Fangraphs had their prospect week last week, which we noted, and you'll see some changes on our site as reflected of some of those numbers that they had in their in their ratings. Um, Fangraphs is one of the inputs that we use. Baseball America is another big one. Um, those are actually the two with the highest ratings. And I want to talk about why that is a little bit. Um, you'll notice that... Um, some other sites do publish lists and do, in some cases, publish uh, organizational ratings. Um, but it, we have a checklist of criteria. It needs to be, obviously, a quality input. Like, do these people know what they're talking about? Are they really good? Yes, Baseball America is really good. They've been the gold standard. They've got a whole team of people. They've got cross-checkers. They understand. They, they, they work it all out. Um, I do believe Fangraphs is really good as well. Eric Longenhagen is the main guy there, but he's had some help lately from Kevin Goldstein and Tescaruska. And so they've got a team now, and they do a very thorough job as well. They pretty much check all the boxes, except they're, they're not quite as timely as some of the other sites. Baseball America it checks all the boxes. They're timely. They've got cross-checking. They've got another thing that I, we look at is, is there any bias? Um, you know, and, and I think this is an important point. One of the reasons we don't use MLB Pipeline is because they're owned by MLB. And if you if you read their blurbs, there's ne there's almost never anything negative said about anybody. So in, in all their ratings are sort of slightly higher, slightly inflated than you would want them to be. So they don't fit in the model really well. Another point is um, you want to make sure that it's useful. Like Keith Law is really good when you read his his organizational ratings, but there's no numbers on them. So you have no idea how much more he values one prospect over another. He's just giving you his top 20 and with some blurbs that are very entertaining and very knowledgeable, but we can't use them. And so we found that the most useful inputs are the ones that are credible, thorough, cross-checked, 
timely and oh by the way they've talked to front offices and they've they've talked to scouts and they've gotten input from the league so we know that there's a correlation there they're not just making that up so we think we have the best of the best basically feeding into our numbers so that's point number one point number two is as we've said before on the site prospects tend to follow a power law distribution there's a couple of elite ones at the top and they have the highest probability of not only making the major leagues but also becoming impact players and then there's sort of the next tier sort of your 50 rated who are going to be most likely and will be regulars but there's a variance there sometimes it's a high higher upside guy but he's younger and so he has a higher variance so you kind of split the difference and say like, he's a 50 right now but he may as he climbs the ranks if he keeps performing turn into a 55 or a 60 or a 65 and that's going to increase his value as he goes up uh con you know on the converse maybe the higher variance guys don't do as well in the next year or two and they start to fall down so we keep an eye on those and so the point there is that those ratings and in turn the numbers that we translate into our valuations are based on probabilities probabilities of a making it to the major leagues and b becoming an impact player and you could actually work it out if you sort of sketched out you know a two win player over six years would be worth x amount of you know value minus their salary it works out about to where our numbers are we just don't show that calculation because there's too much variance and it would be too speculative but that's the basis of the thinking and so those, those are the reasons why we sort of you know have the inputs that we do and why they show up the way they do um, the one thing I wish we could improve upon is the timeliness of some of the numbers because we're dependent on some of these sources you know we don't get them as, as soon as we would like I'm a little frustrated that Fangraph still hasn't gone through all 30 of their organizational lists for example they, I, they're way behind they've only gotten done like 10 of them but you know the top 116 that they published last week was useful at the top of the rankings so at least there's that so we will still have some more information you know as they sort of go through sort of the middle and lower tiers of theirs but they're not as highly weighted in our model so it's not going to be too much of a difference from what you see today so for the most part what you see today is more or less where they're going to end up and i'll pause there any questions or comments oh, i think that's really thorough and you hit on i i share that frustration as well yeah uh historically and it, it's happened at the mid-season updates as well from all of the publications and, and everything where a trade goes down and then right after the trade happens one of those publications goes oh we were going to release our updated list for that team next week and this guy moved up three spots or whatever it was <sighs> and so now when we input the updated value look at that the deal matches up perfectly when it didn't before that's a point of frustration yeah. for sure uh wonder if at some point here we, we start brokering deals with some of these places and get us the information first please yeah <laughs> yeah that's the obvious next step yeah but even then um, they take their time to do it and so we may yeah. that may not be possible so if it is possible we will try yeah but yeah so so that's frequently one of the reasons that our values aren't quite up to date is because they can't be but because we have multiple sources that theoretically helps kind of diminish that effect of you know maybe we've heard from we've seen the updated values from some sources but not just one of them that can kind of help a little bit or if there's kind of a general industry consensus that yeah this guy's going up even if he hasn't been mentioned specifically from one source on their list we can we have the confidence to move him up a grade or whatever yeah that kind of thing so yeah i think that's a very good summary of it um would you like to move ahead yeah i just want to make one last point so um i had a <clears throat> a while ago i had an interesting discussion with uh, a front office executive who you know and i asked him about this and i said you know are 
um, how do I put this? Um, are are they um, are they sort of rating when they trade for a prospect? Are they rating them as they would now, or are they sort of anticipating where they might be a year from now? And he said, "Oh yeah, we're jumping the gun. <laughs> like, we're anticipating where he's going to be a year from now." And so they're kind of a step ahead on the front office side. Um, and so we have to anticipate that as well. I mean, sometimes like a prospect like Ellie De La Cruz in the Met Reds is got a lot of helium right now. He jumped up some lists out of sort of nowhere. And, you know, but front offices probably knew about him a year ago and it only just started showing up on, on our lists and our sources more recently. So, you know, we, we feel like sometimes we're a step behind. And so um, we do our best to make sure that we, yeah, I, I follow everything. I follow the chats, you know, I follow the daily updates to see, is there any sort of movement here? Is this guy sort of getting some helium? And if so, like, at what point do we move him up? We try not to do that because we're really trying not to get into the business of being evaluators, but we also have to keep an eye on, on those sort of fast risers as well. The first name that comes to mind with that kind of discussion is Hudson Head. Mm-hmm. I believe he was the main piece in the Joe Musgrove trade. Was that the one? That's right. Um. But yeah, he was one of those where it was kind of jumping the gun, where he had not broken out yet, but he was kind of a hot pick to break out. And he yeah. wasn't necessarily fantastic in 2021. It wasn't necessarily the season the Pirates were probably hoping for then, but he is still one of those types of guys. He's a guy who has been identified as one who could move up pretty quickly. So even though he wasn't the highest valued, the highest rated at the time of the trade, he was enough for the Pirates to take that chance and make him the centerpiece there. The one that I think of who's also on the Pirates is Andy Rodriguez, I believe is his name. He's a catcher, and he was involved in a trade. Uh, I think that th- it was the three-way trade between the Padres and Mets. And um, I'm blanking on all the details. But anyway, we only had him at like one or two right now, and since then he's climbed up quite a bit. Um, I'm checking our numbers here. Andy Rodriguez, he's now at 10.8. So they thought highly enough. And if we had him at 10.8 a year ago when that trade happened, you know, then – you know, our numbers would be very close at the time. It was a little off because like, Oh, he's only like two or three or so. And so, you know, to my point, they'll think they're anticipating a step ahead with a lot of these guys. That was the same trade. Actually. I had forgotten the Musgrove trade was a three team deal, but yeah, it had Lucchese going to the Mets and right. I think Rodriguez came from the Mets. Right. In that deal, so exactly. Yeah. 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 All right. So now we have the fun part. <laughs> it's the, it's time for the farm ranking. So we have, all 30 teams, their top 30 prospects, the values, uh, their, their trade values added up, and we have them on one little list. This is internal. This isn't on the website, but we're going to go through it uh, right here with you all. And let's start at the bottom. Uh, we're going we're gonna to talk about these first couple teams because they're so far behind everyone else that it makes them really interesting outliers here. Um, but then, you know, as we get into the middle, we're going to kind of group teams together, pick the interesting ones. We're not going to Unfortunately, we're not going to spend 10 minutes on each of the 30 teams. We could, (laughs) knowing us, we could spend 10 minutes or longer on each of these teams, but we're going to be good. So we're going to start at the bottom here. And then once we get up to the top, we're going to, you know, kind of like we did on the last episode with the top 10 most highest valued players in baseball, we're going to take it slower, break them down one by one and, and bring it up to the, to the number one spot. So starting at the bottom here, number 30, Drum roll, please. Chicago White Sox. <laughs> Their top 30 prospects combined for only 71.4 million in median trade value. So, John, what's 
What's your assessment of the White Sox? So remember when there was that dumb article saying, hey, the White Sox could get Juan Soto. And everyone was like, you could trade the whole farm and still not be able to get Juan Soto. We have Juan Soto at 224. We have the entire top 30 of the White Sox at 71. So like, it's not even... Uh, no, I mean, obviously the White Sox are a competitive team right now, and they have a, a lot of good young talent, a lot of you know guys like Luis Robert and Juan Mercado, who used to be top prospects. They've all graduated, and they're helping the MLB team, which is ultimately what you want to do. But because of that, um, they've got nothing on the farm. Their highest prospect is set at 7.6, and there's three of those guys, actually, Colson Montgomery, Jose Rodriguez, and Liz Cap. I mean, these are basically, you know, like 45, 40-plus guys. Uh, who are still not even in double digits, and that's the top. A lot of see a lot of these farm systems will have some some top heaviness as we'll get into. This one just is just nothing. It's not even a fifty. It's just you know it's bone dry. I will say that they are in one of those positions. Uh, we we'll we'll get to the A's a little later, but it's it's not too different from them. Where part of it is that they've graduated a lot of talent. Um, underneath the prospect rankings, we have kind of our post prospects, which is the guys that have recently graduated and we still need to blend their major league production with their prospect value to get their final current trade value. And you look at guys like Dylan Sees, who's a great pitcher, Luis Robert, who is a stud, uh, Michael Kopech, who's got all kinds of talent. Andrew Vaughn still hasn't broken out at the big league level, but he was a top prospect. Even Gavin Sheets, who wasn't as regarded as a prospect, but he's had some major league success and he's increasing his value that way so there's still plenty of young talent on the team it's not incredibly bleak for the white Sox, but they're definitely they're definitely in last place here it <laughs> yeah. definitely makes it a lot harder to get any trades done especially since they're not a team that's going to break open the bank to either sign big free agents or take on an underwater contract to facilitate a deal so it makes it tougher for them to make upgrades lucky for them they have a pretty good roster that doesn't need too many upgrades but I think you could see, because of how weak their farm is right now, you could see the window starting to close in a couple years here. Yep. All right, moving on to number 29, the Los Angeles Angels. John, take it away. So um, not much going on here as well. Um, now keep in mind, we are pretty um, aggressive. Uh, Josh mentioned our post-prospects list. You know, Once they get up onto a major league roster, and have at least a month of service time, they tend to go off of our prospect list. And that's, this is our sort of our way of doing it. So guys like uh, Joe Adele and Brendan Marsh are not on this list uh, because they're not considered you know, pure prospects. So as a result, there's not much here. Sam Bachman, recent draft pick, is their top, and he's the only one even in double digits at 11.4. And after that, you've got a couple of wild cards, Kyron Perez, Rivera. You know, guys are sort of farther away that have some upside, but also some high variance. So... Not much here. Yeah, and that continues kind of the Angels' problem here. They've never had a huge farm since Trout graduated, really, and it's made it really tough for them to put a great team around him. I mean, I guess they had one season where their farm was a little artificially inflated by Shohei Otani coming over. Um, but yeah, it, it's part of what makes it so difficult for them to create you know the, the the whole thing has been just put a 500 team around mike trout and they'll go to the playoffs well it's hard to do when you're not producing much from your farm um they did take a bit of a strange approach to the last draft they drafted all pitchers uh, or was it all but one pitchers one of the, it was something yeah like that. i thought it was all of them <laughs> i think so um and, and so you know pitchers can be even more of you know lottery ticket type guys than 
than position player prospects. They have the average prospect. So, I mean, if you're drafting 20 pitchers, maybe if they did a good enough job on it, a couple of those guys start skyrocketing up lists in the next few years. But yeah, as of now, it's not looking great. And it's looking like, like we said with the White Sox, <laughs> if, if they're going to add to this team and, and get to the playoffs, they're going to need to do it by using their wallets, not by using their prospects. So yeah. it's, it's getting a little tough for them. Yeah. All right, so then there's actually a big jump here. So we go from those two who are in the 70s to the 29th spot is the Washington Nationals at 120.4. Yeah. <laughs> That's a big jump. Um, I'm just going to briefly go through these next few teams, um, and then we can pick what we want to say about them. <laughs> but 28th, Nationals, 120.4. 27, the Athletics, 121.2. Astros are at 26 with 124.6. And then the Brewers are 25th with 127.5 in trade value. So, John, where do you want to start with those four? What do you want to say? So there are, I mean, you know, this is no secret. The, everybody knows these are all weak farms, but at least, you know, each one of these has a little bit of something. Like the A's have Tyler Soderstrom, um, you know, top 50 prospect, you know, in most lists. And then there's nothing. So you got a little top heaviness there. Um, the Astros climbed up a little bit with the Fangraphs uh, list because they had uh, Jeremy Pena uh, ranked higher, and they had Corey Lee as well, who's sort of was also highly ranked by a couple of other ones. So they got a couple guys in double digits, and Hunter Brown just barely in hundred. So they got a couple of guys there that are, you know, um, maybe major leaguers. You know, maybe one of those guys becomes an impact player, but that's a lot of maybes. Um, Nationals have not had much going on since they won the World Series. They kind of their whole farm kind of tapped out. It was actually weaker, but they made those trades at the deadline. Although those guys are now in the major league team, but Kid Cavalli has been showing a lot of uh, signs of being a potential, you know, top of the rotation starter. Brady House was a top draft pick who's got some upside, but after that, not a whole lot. Um, and then um, oh, the Brewers. Brewers just don't have like a, a stud at the top. They've got a couple of guys who are just sort of, yeah, maybe, maybe, you know, Sal Frelick and Garrett Mitchell and Bryce Terang. And, you know, they got a, they had a pop-up guy in Joey Weimer this year, kind of came out of nowhere. But all these guys have big question marks. So there's nothing really there to hang your hat on this guy. So, yeah, that guy's going to be a future, you know, absolutely major leaguer. They're all just sort of maybes. So in most cases, these, you know, this group of farms, are, are pretty weak. There's not a like a, you know, outside of shoulders from the A's, there's not a like a big, you know, oh, that guy's going to be great. It's just a lot of question marks. Yeah. I, we've talked about the A's a lot. This number is, you know, depending on how things go at, with the lockout and everything, this number could go a lot higher for them as they trade Matt Chapman, Matt Olson, their starting pitchers um, for prospects. So we could see them kind of bump up this list because, as I mentioned, they're, in a similar spot to where the White Sox were, but just a few years past them. So, you know, they're on the closing end of that window where they graduated a bunch of guys and then traded a bunch more to make the team better in their competitive window. And now that's kind of run out. Um, and then the Astros, we've talked about how their window might be closing. Um, lost George Springer last offseason, and they might lose Correa this offseason. That remains to be seen. Uh, but then guys like Altuve are only getting older. Alex Bregman has trouble staying healthy. Justin Verlander is going to be 40 soon. Um, they're clearly their window is closing and it's, it's a testament to their own abilities and their own drafting and development that they aren't down with the white Sox and angels right now. But the team that's kind of a red flag to me is the nationals. 
you mentioned that their two biggest uh, recent like prospect acquisitions were Josiah Gray and Kybert Ruiz, and both of those guys graduated, so they're not included in this number, uh, but they are significant talents at 62.1 for Kybert Ruiz and 26.5 for Josiah Gray. But they've just had some real issues developing talent. And I mean, the obvious obvious caveat is they developed Juan Soto. And I mean, anytime you can develop a Juan Soto, good job. You should, you should keep trying to do that. But I mean, you look at Victor Robles, who never really became much as a highly regarded prospect. Carter Keboom looks like yeah. a, another bust. They just haven't done any work to develop much. And they don't have any trade chips left on the roster unless they are, God forbid, trading Juan Soto at some time in the next few years. Um, it, it's tough to see a clear path back to contention for the Nationals, especially with how much more competitive that division has gotten. So yeah. I think of of this group, they're the team I am the most worried about. Yeah, because, you know, they're in the cellar now and they've got a bad farm, so it's going to be a rough couple of years. And then the question is, what do they do with Soto? Do they extend him? Do they? It's it's. I don't think it's the right time to trade him now because he's, you know, nobody's going to pony, pony up with him. too valuable. He's not tradable. Yeah, so, you know, they're, su- they're stuck. It's, it's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Next group of teams here. So, so as I mentioned, it was really those bottom two, and now we're kind of into a, a slowly increasing glut here. Um, at 24, we have the Phillies at 131.5. 23, the Braves at 142.2. 22, the Marlins at 146, uh, 146.4. 21, the Twins at 158.7. And then 20, we have the Rockies at 158.9. So that is one, two, three, four, five teams, I believe. Yeah. Uh, which of those, I mean, I mean, do you want to give your thoughts on those? Is there any that stand out to you? We're getting kind of into this middle area here where there isn't a whole lot of separation between any of these teams. And it's just like, okay, this team, you know, they were competitive and they traded some guys and that's why they're here. Or they've had some issues developing and that's why they're here. Uh, but do any of these yeah. stand out as particular cases to you? Just a couple. I, mean, I don't think anyone's going to be surprised that the Phillies are sort of down, at, you know, number 24 because they haven't had a farm much to speak of in a while. But the Braves might surprise a little people, and the Marlins might surprise a little, maybe even the Twins. So let's talk about those. So the Braves have seen a lot of, um, you know, uh, unfortunately, Christian Pache has not hit, and so his value, you know, he's not considered a prospect, but from a developmental standpoint, he's really struggling. Drew Waters was going to be their top prospect. He really struggled this past year, and so his stock dropped quite a bit. Um, And so they don't you know, have as strong a farm as you might have thought. A lot of their pitching prospects from a couple of years ago didn't work out. Kyle Wright comes to mind. So, um, you know, it's 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 not a great farm. There's still a few things that are going on there, but it, it's not great. Um, the Marlins might surprise people because they think, wow, they're really um, coming up. They've got a lot of young talent, but they don't have a standout. Uh, Yuri Perez is the number one uh, prospect according to Baseball America. And he's still a kid. He's like 18 and a lot of high variance there. He could bust, he could boom. And so they can't really give him that high a rating. And so, and from there, J.J. Um, Blade, former first round pick, has struggled quite a bit. You know, hit 211 you know, this past year and he had a swing change, so maybe that'll help. So there's not like, you know, and they had a, they had a, um, you know, top draft pick who may turn out well, but there's still a lot of question marks in that form. So there's not really a heavy hitter that you can point to. And the Twins, Unfortunately, got hit pretty hard by Royce Lewis's injuries. He's, he's struggled to stay healthy. Austin Martin, who was the key, uh, the lead piece in the Jose Barrios trade. Now there's a lot of questions about him. 
you know, in terms of his, he's got a weird sort of tweener package. Where does he fit? Is he an infielder? Is he an outfielder? Does he have power? Is he going to hit? They guys contact him. We've got a good hit tool, but what else really do you have there? So there's got, the Twins are now sort of in a weird place where with, you know, they may not have as good a farm as you thought. So those three are sort of like, the, the moral of the story is they're not as good as you think. What stands out to me about the Braves is they had this, otherworldly class of pitching prospects and everyone across the game was salivating over them and really it's i mean i guess a few of them hit but they they just it was only a few of them you know that's why you need more than five pitching prospects in an organization five good pitching prospects if you want to have a a developed staff down the road i mean max freed he's been great he's hit for sure um sean newcomb no he's been kind of a mess kyle right you mentioned ian anderson was kind of a surprise out of there and he was one of the later additions to that crew um and you got like mike soroka who we don't really know what he'll look like when he's healthy again um but yeah that's kind of i wonder about kind of just their strategy of putting so much emphasis on pitching if that necessarily worked out for them um and i also wonder how hard the international sanctions from a few years back have contributed to this of you know i think it was john coppolella right yeah. that's his name um when he was skirting the bonus pool rule bonus pool rules and uh resulted in those international sanctions that stopped them from signing any big talent that was where they found a lot of their talent and that kind of kind of gotten frozen for a couple years um speaking of that pitching thing that's kind of where the marlins uh, in our in our prospect valuation a pitcher is ranked lower than a hitter of the same grade a 45 pitcher is worth less than a 45 hitter and a lot of the marlins prospects are pitchers so Mm -hmm. that's part of it um that they're just they have a lot more of their value uh resting in more volatile Mm -hmm. types of player uh riskier and so we have to kind of knock them down a little bit for that Mm -hmm. and then the twins last thing i want to mention is that they did just graduate a few guys. And I mean, mm-hmm. we can point this out for most teams. They just graduated a decent prospect, but Alex Kirilov, Trevor Larnack, those are two guys who could be mm-hmm. corner outfielders for them for the next six years. Um, and then Joe Ryan, an interesting pitcher. And so those three guys all just graduated this last season and you factor them into the mix and it's looking much more like a middle of the pack farm than a bottom third farm. So yeah, uh, worth pointing out for that one. Also Rockies, get it together figure something out you can't <laughs> you can't be in the bottom 10 of the farm rankings and also be one of the worst teams in the league and also not know how to spend money or develop or perform analytics or anything like that be good at get good at something please Rockies. <laughs> just one thing everyone likes zach veen so let's hope they, they yeah. you know he turns out right but after that i'm not so sure what they got yeah all right next chunk uh, let's go padres are 19th at 162.3 at 18th are the toronto blue jays at 165.4 17th are the cardinals at 179.3 15th are the giants at 193.4 oh shoot i did i'm sorry 17th are the cardinals 179.3 16th are the reds 192.1 15th are the giants 193.4 and let's also include the mets here at 196.9 because then there's a bit of a jump after them yep middle tier yep yeah, so those six, uh, that, I can't count today, apparently. That's one, four, two, yeah, three, six. four, five. Yeah, yeah, that's six teams. Okay, I thought so. <laughs> I mean, I tried to make it five teams. Sorry, Reds. Um, to me, this group, I mean, we've talked about the Padres before and how they're in kind of a bind because they're they're another one of those teams where they have a couple mega prospects. They got Abrams, they got Hassel, 
they got Campusano, although I, has he graduated yeah. or is he still? In, okay. in our model, so, he so, is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So they got those two big prospects and a big gap after them. Um, so we've talked about them pretty extensively and the kind of spot that that's put them in this offseason. Um, the Blue Jays have, are another team that have graduated a lot of guys. So there's not, I mean, they're in the middle of the pack here, but they're in the middle of the pack with a young, very talented team. And, you know, they just traded a couple big guys for Jose Barrios. And so I'm not concerned about the Blue Jays yeah. in any way. They've done a really good job developing talent. Um, the Cardinals, I don't need to look at any kind of value numbers for the Cardinals. I know that they'll have a couple star prospects and then like 10 guys who aren't anything but turn into <laughs> Tommy Edmond and yep. Matt Carpenter and, yep. and whoever else. So Cardinals devil magic. It's a thing. Read up on it. <laughs> um, the, the team that stands out to me the most in this chunk and not to dismiss the Reds and Mets, but I don't have too much to say about them, but the Giants they've had kind of an up and down year on their farm. They had some guys really move up, some guys really move down and they were much more cautious than they could have been. You know, they won 150 games or whatever it was last year, but didn't sell the farm to try and make sure that they'd capitalize on that and pull ahead of the Dodgers. They ended up pulling ahead of the Dodgers anyway, but they didn't mortgage their farm in the process, which was probably smart of them, you know, kind of playing with house money last year since they were so far ahead of schedule. Um, And that, theoretically makes them a scary team going forward but also you figure most of their top prospects are another year or two away at least their big guys marco luciano who's at least another year or two uh, he's going to be a very good player but most of their major league players are you know buster posey just retired and beyond him it's you know brandon crawford evan longoria brandon belt these guys are all old so i wonder if we see kind of a step down over the next year or two for the giants before another kind of push up toward the top with guys like Luciano and yeah. Kyle Harrison is their best pitching prospect. I know a lot of people really like him. So they're the most interesting of this bunch to me. So I should mention, um, I thought Kevin Goldstein did a really good piece a few days ago on, you know, setting expectations for prospects on fan graphs. I should mention, um, you know, he basically said, look, not all these guys are going to make it. It's fun to think about their upside and imagine that they all do. But the reality is a good chunk of them do not ever make it. And so when you've only got a couple of top guys, yes, they have a higher probability of making it, but some of them just won't. And to your point about the Giants, you know, if you're only looking at a couple of guys at the top, you know, let's say I'm just going to look at the Giants list. Um, let's say Luciano makes it. Matos doesn't. Let's say Kyle Harrison makes it. Elliot Ramos doesn't. So you got two guys in your future. Meanwhile, all those old guys you mentioned are going to be done in two years or so. And so, like, what else are you going to do? You're going to spend money on free agents. Probably you're going to cobble something together and maybe hope for, you know, Will Bednar to come up or our Everson Artiaga to come up, whoever, you know, and maybe you get a couple lucky with a couple of guys that you didn't expect. And so, um, but they got a lot of holes to fill. So you can't just count on, oh, you've got four guys in double digits in your model, but, you know, maybe only two of those guys actually do make it. So you got some work to do there. Yeah, definitely. I'm glad you brought that piece up. I'll, I'll try to remember to link that in the show notes. It was a really good one and one that anybody who cares about prospects at all should probably take a look at. Yeah. Um, I lied earlier. I want to say something really quick about the Reds. Uh, you mentioned Ellie De La Cruz earlier as a big riser. Um, a lot of people also like Jay Allen, outfielder mm-hmm. that uh, I think he was their first round pick yep. last year. Yep. Um, so a lot of people are really high on him. We have him at 9.1 right now, but that seems like a guy who could move up. Mm-hmm. 
And then one that I personally am just so excited to watch if we ever have a season here is Hunter Green. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's been a really fascinating prospect since day one. He's always thrown super hard. He was a two-way player initially and then just a pitcher uh, once he joined the Reds. And it looked like he was kind of a bust for a little bit there, but now he's really making a good comeback. Um, and, And he could be... If not a bullpen, if not if not a starter, he could contribute out of the bullpen for the Reds as early as this season, depending on what the season looks like and how they decide to handle him. So, definitely have an eye on him. He's their he's their top prospect right now at twenty eight point two, but he's a huge huge upside guy, and I'm really looking forward to seeing him. Yeah, and the Reds, um, it's interesting because some of these you know organizations have like one top guy and then nothing. You know, the Reds have a little bit more balance. You know, they've got him at the top. They've got Nick Lodolo, another sort of top pitching prospect. We mentioned De La Cruz. They've got Matt McLean at 15.4 in our model. Austin Hendrick, Jay Allen, Reese Hines has got some upside. So they've got like, you know, you know, four to six guys who could potentially help. And to my previous point, maybe that ends up being two to three guys. But nonetheless, that's more than some of the other uh, teams have here. Yeah, uh, I feel bad. Do you have something quick to say about the Mets? I so don't but i feel like we should <laughs> uh the only thing i can say um well and shouldn't be the only thing but uh, obviously francisco alvarez is their top prospect he's got he's at 68 he's a top 10 national prospect so it's him and then they've got some guys with question marks um red Beatty, who is a little bit older when he was drafted but he's coming up so he may actually have a good shot at making it ronnie mariso is kind of the the his stock has dropped a little bit. He was, you know, considered a five-tool prospect, but hasn't really performed quite to expectations. Uh, Mark Vientos, great power. He started. He had a really good season, but he's sort of limited, probably ended up at first base. Maybe a lot of swing and miss there. So you've got guys at that point where like, okay, they got some upside, but they got some issues. Matt Ellen injured, you know. JT again coming off an injury, and then after that, there's not much. So, but they want to. They've mentioned that they want to keep those guys as much as possible for the longer term. So they're they've got Steve Cohen's money to spend, as you've seen him spend, to build up the current team, and they don't really want to trade these. You know, use them as capital. They want to hold on and see what they got. Yeah, definitely. I lied. I do have something to say about the Mets. It's not something very relevant at all. But JT Schwartz, their first base prospect. He we only have him at one point two. He's not too terribly highly regarded, uh, but he went moderately viral last week. He showed up to minor league camp, and there was a video of him taking batting practice. And he has Matt Olson's swing, <laughs> like like the whole the whole hands over the plate, bat waggling around, and <laughs> it's uncanny how <laughs> how similar it is. And that's not saying that he's going to be the next Matt Olson because it took Matt Olson a long time to become what he is now. Uh, but I can't say I don't have my eye on him. Okay. All right, now we're pushing up toward the top 10 here, so let's just get these next three before we get to the top 10. Number 13, New York Yankees, 213.3. Number 12, Los Angeles Dodgers, 213.9. And then number 11, Chicago Cubs, 225.8. So the Dodgers are always near the top here, uh, but they've graduated players, they've traded players. There's, There's only... It's it's incredible that they've been such a successful team, haven't had any high draft picks, haven't been selling players, yet they've still managed to be in the top half of this list, let alone, you know, knocking on the door of the top 10. They're, they're one prospect breakout away from the top 10 right now. Mm-hmm. It's it's an incredible scouting development. Every, every part of their 
system is is incredible and it's why they're so successful it's it's insane you know comparing them to a team like the giants who are spots a few spots below them the dodgers have been consistently competitive the giants had a big rebuild phase and they're in about the same spot the dodgers even ahead of them so that's i there are not enough words i can say about how (laughs) impressive that is to me yeah um and the cubs obviously had a pretty big boost from trading javier baez anthony rizzo chris bryant uh, last uh, and K- Craig Kimbrell almost forgot. And you uh, Darvish trading... before that. Yes, you Darvish. Yeah, they've been on kind of a, a selling spree the last year or so, um, and they've obviously benefited from that. They're also knocking on the door of the top ten. Um, one name I want to point out there is Pete Crow Armstrong, who they got in the uh, Javier Baez deal from the Mets. He was kind of looking like a glove only guy, and you know there still are some people who see him that way. But he did make a significant swing change. The, the Fangraphs guys have been talking about it mm-hmm. uh, for a while now. And so he's definitely a name to watch. He's got such a good glove. He's, he's fast. He's got all the other tools. And if he gets that hit tool working, watch out. That's that's a guy who could skyrocket up lists and, and really be an impact major leaguer all around. So not, not to get too excited yet. It's just a swing change. We haven't really seen it in game yet. But some people are pretty excited about him. And he's one to keep an eye on. Yeah, so I just want to comment on a couple. Of, first, with the Yankees, um, they're another team that has a very impressive track record. We talked about their their presence in the Dominican Republic, and they've signed and developed a lot of guys from that area. Um, but you know, they've had some some duds, but they've also had some big wins. The latest being Anthony Volpe, who broke out in a major way, now as a top ten national prospect. But you know, guys below that as well, Oswald Peraza, Everson Pereira, and of course their their big signing, Jason Dominguez, from what one or two years ago, uh, internationally. Um, he wasn't quite as impressive as they'd hoped in his first year of professional baseball, but you know, he's still very young and he's still got some tools, so he's still you know got some value there. But you know, there's a long list in the middle, and even though they've traded quite a few guys, you've got guys like Alexander Vargas and Austin Wells, and, and I could go on. But but you know, they're they're a deep organization that continues to develop. So some of these guys you might see break out in the next year or two. The Dodgers, I have nothing else to say, but I will add Keith Law ranked them as his top organization. He thought their depth was hilarious. I think was the word he used. And what I think he means by that is that they are so good at developing guys out of sometimes nowhere that like, whoa, you just sort of expect them to have the next Ande Pajes or, um, you know, whoever the next guy is. And they just keep coming and coming and coming. And so I, that, that organization just produces, you know, talent. Um, they, they, they scout them well and they, they develop well. So I think that's why they're consistently, um, you know, in the top half. So, um, I, we don't have them as ranked as highly as Keith Law does because we've crunched our numbers and we don't. We think there's some work to do there. But to my earlier point, you know, sometimes teams anticipate them. If they think that guy is upside, they might want to trade for him and give him more than we say they have. So it's possible the Dodgers are underranked here for that reason. Yeah, that, that's one thing that we can't really quantify is how much value these teams mm-hmm. can add to these players through development. Um, you know, there's a whole book written about that one too, the MVP machine. Go check that yeah, out. Yeah, another good but... one. <laughs> But, yeah, we can't quantify that. This is just where they are right now based on where those players are um, and where they've been evaluated by our other sources. Um, Yankees are a team that could definitely, you know, they're kind of the the anti-Mets. It's funny that they're ranked right next to each (laughs) other here. Uh, But they're a team who they're not going to be spending much. I mean, unless the CBA drastically changes things, um, 
which it, it doesn't seem likely to, uh, that they're not a team that's probably going to spend too much uh, out of the lockout, but they might make a significant trade for a Matt Olson type, or who knows, maybe they sign a Freddie Freeman and they trade for a center fielder or whatever. Uh, but I would expect their value to go down, them to kind of fall to the, you know, 17, 18, 19 range when all is said and done here. Um, and then I actually, the Dodgers, one last thing I want to add that, I think I've heard that outfield prospect's name, Andy Pajes, Andy Pages, what I've heard it pronounced so many different ways. <laughs> Cannot wait until he makes the big leagues so we can actually find out once and for all. And I'm sure it's somewhere. I, I'm sure there's somewhere that tells you how he he pronounces it. And may, I should probably look that up as somebody who talks on a podcast every other week. But oh, I need I need to know that one. Yeah, we got to figure it so that out. So many different ways. <laughs> <laughs> we talk about right. it a lot. Okay. Yeah. All right, we're into the top 10. We're going to go one at a time, but since we are at the hour and a half mark, shocker, uh, we are going to go a little bit more quickly through the bottom half of the top 10. So number 10, the Texas Rangers at 227.7. They are obviously, before the lockout, they were one of the loudest teams. They made that big push, but that was mostly financial. They haven't made any trades yet. It remains to be seen if they will. Um, They are another one of those teams that isn't particularly top-heavy. They're pretty well spread out. They have uh, Josh Young at 38 million, Jack Leiter at 37.4, Colwyn 23.1, Ezekiel Duran 18.5, Josh Smith 11.9, and then a whole bunch of guys between like 10 and four mm-hmm. or so. Yeah. Um, and so they have more, and we've talked in the past about kind of a middle infield glut that they have. So they have plenty of pieces if they want to make a trade. We've also discussed at length whether they should or shouldn't and whether their window is actually open or not. Um, the one other name to point out here, Josh Young will be missing significant time. We learned uh, due to that shoulder. In- it was shoulder, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, shoulder yeah. injury. Yeah. So he'll be missing much of this season. Uh, might might be able to get some reps in at the end of the year. He's a guy we could see in maybe the Arizona Fall League next year to get more reps if he's healthy by then. But yeah, we're expecting his value has taken a hit from that from that injury. We have adjusted for it, but yeah, that that is notable is is worth pointing out there yeah so this is just a deep solid farm you know as you put it there's not like a superstar at the, at the top but there's some good high probable regulars there and sort of a long list of maybes and, you know you figure one or a couple of guys are going to emerge from that list so but they do probably need to trade a couple of these middle infield guys they don't need 14 second basemen so i expect some activity once the lockout ends yeah definitely all right, number nine, the Cleveland Guardians at 231.5. They've been really impressive. Uh, you wrote an article many months ago. And because of the lockout, it feels like it was many years ago. <laughs> but you wrote an article about kind of the roster glut that they had because they've done very, very well internationally especially. But even in the draft, and, and we all know about how well they can develop pitching, uh, but they just have too many. They're kind of having a raise problem right now. They have too many prospects to protect, and so they ended up leaving a few of those notable guys unprotected uh, we'll see if that actually matters or not, if there's even a Rule 5 draft this year, like we were talking about before. Uh, but in general, it's kind of kind of similar to, to the Rangers. It's a very deep – I'm trying to pull, up, pull them up right now. It's a very deep, balanced farm. Yeah, they have three guys worth in the 25 million range and then another few in the 20 million range. And then, yeah, it's it's really impressive. And they have some quality Major League pieces that these guys could join in a few years, you know, Shane Bieber, Jose Ramirez. And I think the depth of this farm really explains why they haven't traded Jose Ramirez and why I don't think they will, at least not in the immediate future. 
because they don't really need to right now. I mean, he's got so much value, and I guess they could make a strong farm even stronger, but I think it makes more sense to just keep him. You know, he's a stud. Keep him around and build around him, and, and it's not like the Major League team right now is too terrible either. Yeah. It's on the, the brink of contention, and if we get 12 or 14 team playoffs, they're one of those potential wildcard teams, as is. So why give that up just to make a strong farm a little bit stronger. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, look, Cleveland is famous, absolutely famous for developing its pitching, you know, the Beavers and, and Zavalis and others. And so you can look at some of the pitchers like, okay, um, you may not you know, realize it, but Logan T. Allen had a really good year. He's probably got a lot more upside than even we're showing here. Daniel Espino, we've got a lot of Cleveland fans on our site who are like, pounding the table saying, why isn't he rated higher? <laughs> so, um, you know, because he could be a potential ace. He's got great stuff. Um, so um, keeping that in mind, because they're in the Cleveland organization, they may, you know, succeed. They may have a higher probability of success than if they weren't in the Cleveland organization. So give that some thought. Um, and some of these guys are, that are position players, you know, there's not one that stands out. They're all, as you said, in the, you know, Tyler Freeman and Brian Rocky, they're all in the twenties. Um, and they probably need to trade some of this glut, um, cause they're not all going to make it or not have positions you know, for them. So, um, but there's not like a superstar. And so Cleveland does not have as good a track record of developing position players as they do with pitchers. So I imagine that's another reason why they might want to trade a couple of these guys. You should also note that guys like Nolan Jones and Bo Naylor, who were ranked higher previously, have fallen down due to sort of weak performance years in 2021. So um, not everybody's going to make it from this group as well. Yeah, definitely. All right, number eight, Kansas City Royals, 233.5. I will let you go first on this one. Yeah, so the Royals have been quietly, well, if you, you know, I, I think we can say quietly developing and drafting and developing, drafting and developing. Obviously, they got a mega prospect in Bobby Wood Jr., who's one of the top three consistent uh, consensus prospects in the game. But you got some real breakouts here. MJ Melendez had a swing change, and he just started raking. And he's really climbed up some lists here. He's a catching prospect. And it's interesting because he's blocked by Salvador Perez. So what are they going to do with him? Are they going to put that back, bat in the lineup? He's at the AAA level already, so he's knocking on the door. Maybe he's a DH. But, then you know, they've got Nick Prado, another guy who, who had a really good season and really climbed up, and he's a first-base prospect. So you've got kind of those, you know, those hitting positions covered there um, with just these prospects that say nothing to the major league team. Um, Asa Lacey was um, a high draft pick from a couple of years ago. He hasn't quite uh, developed as, as high as much as they would have thought. Um, so he's dropped down a little bit. They had a breakout from uh, another first base prospect named Vinny Pasquantino, who a lot of people never even heard of, who just kind of forced his way onto the map. And so now he's up there. So um, a lot of this value, though, is Bobby Witt in this organization. And once he graduates, um, it'll look a little bit more normal because some of these guys are sort of iffy um but you know there's enough quantity here to say okay a couple of these guys should make it as well yeah the the royals should be in a much better spot than they are right now when you mention all those big bats that are really knocking on the door uh you know wit there was a report today that he could even break camp with the team we'll see that could just be you know we're not going to manipulate his service time like that kind of thing mm -hmm. um but then, as you mentioned, Melendez, I mean, Salvador Perez's days, he spent so much time behind the plate, get him some DH time. You know, his glove is taking a significant step back here. 
I think there's a pretty clear spot for the two of them to share time between catcher and DH, get both of them in the lineup most days. Um, and then you mentioned Prado, Pascantino, Nick Lofton is interesting. Eric Pena has got high upside. So they, they have some offense on the way and they they have some offense at the big league level too, that that's going to join. But the reason they're not in a better spot right now is they've been unable to develop pitching. It's a bit concerning. Uh, Daniel Lynch, Brady Singer, uh, Jackson Cowar. Those are three pretty big, previously pretty big pitching prospects who have all graduated and haven't been able to put much together at the big league level. You can even, you can include Chris Bubich in that group as well. Uh, those four guys, it, it was exciting. And Carlos Hernandez, there's a fifth guy where, where it was exciting to see them in the big leagues last year all at the same time, but none of them really got it going for any kind of a stretch. And then you factor in what you mentioned with Asa Lacey, that he's been a little bit messier as a prospect than anticipated. And if he doesn't get that control in line, he's a reliever, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, Alec, Alec Marsh, former Sun Devil, uh, has been uh, has been a bit of a breakout prospect. And so maybe he kind of bucks the trend there and, and gets it going. But I have some concerns about their ability to develop that pitching. I think they have enough bats here that they could, you know, just graduate all those bats. And if enough of them are good enough, they pay for some pitching or trade for some pitching and then they're competitive again. There you go. And they don't need to worry about developing any of these guys. But if they have an organizational weakness, that's definitely what it is right now. Yeah, that's a fair point. Number seven, a little surprising to see them this high, but the Boston Red Sox at 235.4. Take it away. So luck of the Red Sox. They have a really bad year. They get a high draft pick, and the teams in front of them spread their bets. And guess what? The Red Sox end up with Marcelo Meyer, the consensus most talented player in that draft from last year, who was already up to 55.4 and in like the national top 20. And so, like, how do the Red Sox do it? And by the way, they also have some developed uh, some other sort of big prospects. Tristan. Is it Cassis or Casas? I mean, you're never quite sure. There's another one we should probably learn to pronounce. He's already climbed up to 52.4. And then the surprise sort of draft pick from a couple of years ago, Nick York, who nobody had ever heard of, like, who um, has done nothing but rake. And they were right. And he's only a second base prospect in terms of defensive value, but man, can he hit. So he's already up to 37.7. After that, you got some sort of question marks. Jeter Downs has fallen down quite a bit due to underperformance and some pitching prospects that have a little bit of upside, but some questionable issues. And, um, but it's mostly that top three, Meyer, Kazas, Kazas, <laughs> and York, who are driving the values here. They're in a pretty good spot organizationally, I would say, where you could argue that their window is closing a little bit at the major league level. Um, we're getting close to the point. I think it's after this upcoming season that Xander Bogarts yeah. can opt out of his contract and mm-hmm. seems pretty likely to do it. Uh, Rafael Devers has a couple years left. Uh, Chris Sale getting up there and and not on the field quite as often as you'd like, but there's still a whole lot of talent there. There's some interesting young pitching with like Tanner Houck who's graduated. Um, And and you could see a world where they sign Seiya Suzuki. They've been pretty heavily linked to him. Uh, He's 27. I want to say, so they sign him, you know, four or five years, they extend one or both of Devers and Bogarts. And then some of these guys are ready to join them in a couple years. Uh, Cassis, Casas, Tristan, <laughs> Tristan will likely be the first one ready to join them. But I mean, with how how impressive Marcelo Mayer and Nick York look, they, they're not too far behind, I don't think. And then you know maybe D- Jeter Downs can put something together. He had a bit of a rough year last year, 
you know, cut down on the strikeouts. Blaze Jordan was a huge name as an amateur because he just has insane raw power and he's still just a very raw player, but he's got a lot of upside there. Um, and, and I want to mention a guy, Josh Winchowski. We've talked about him a ton. He was traded a couple times last off season and he's looking like a solid pitching prospect as well. So they got a pretty uh, credit to Heim Bloom as, as usual. It, it might be shocking to learn that this podcast is pretty pro Heim Bloom. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but he's done something really impressive there in Boston. And once he starts flexing the financial muscle with something like extending Devers, they're going to be a really scary team for the foreseeable future. Yeah. And I would add um, that trade that happened just before the lockout, like at 1159, um, where he traded Hunter Renfro for Jackie Bradley Jr. and two prospects from the Brewers. I would watch those guys as well. And what that sort of signifies for Heimblum's sort of ability to kind of find and develop talent. Those two guys were David Hamilton and Alex Benellis. Um, and they're sort of mid, mid-level ish prospects right now. So not like super top rated guys, but they've got something there. And given Bloom's track record previously with the Rays, I imagine he saw something and can develop it. So, you know, I'm keeping an eye on him for that reason, you know, and then Winkowski was another example of that where he keeps like making these sneaky deals and seeing these guys creep up the value list. So I'll watch those as well. That's a good call. Those, that trade was seemingly universally praised by the industry when it, when it happened, people were really, impressed that he was able to pull that one off and get a couple pretty solid prospects uh, in return. So I agree. Those are two guys to keep an eye on. All right. Sixth team is the Detroit Tigers at 238.7 headlined by, and I I, I promise this is probably the last time I'll do this, but (laughs) headlined by former Sun Devil, Homer Spencer Torkelson, (laughs) actually not even headlined by him though. In, In my mind, maybe, but Riley Green has passed him in in value here, which, I mean, makes some sense. Torkelson is a primary first baseman. He was drafted as a third baseman, but we'll have to see if he actually sticks at either third base or a corner outfield spot, any position of defensive value, or if he ends up at first base. seems like it could be, to a lesser extent, uh, a Vlad Jr. uh, type of story there. He's he's in better shape than Vlad. He's much more athletic than, than Vlad was coming up through the system, but reasonably long-term might just be the best bet to stick him at first base since they do have some other outfield and third base prospects that uh, might be just a better defensive fit for the position. But the bat is insane for Torkelson. I've seen it firsthand. Most impressive (laughs) prospect I've ever seen, uh, amateur prospect I've ever seen. And and I can even say that without the maroon and gold covered colored glasses on. Uh, But Riley Green is every bit as impressive, if not a little bit more so because he's a solid outfielder and he's, a very good hitter as well. So between those two, it's a huge one-two punch at the top of the organization. They are definitely a team that will collapse down these rankings once those two guys graduate. But they do have a decent second tier behind that to either graduate or to trade from. Um, Jackson Job, their first first round pick last year, I believe third overall, um, is a really impressive high school pitcher. But high school pitcher is, is... kind of a four-letter word sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Dylan Dingler. Yep. Yes, absolutely. Dylan Dingler is an interesting catcher. A couple third basemen, Ryan Creedler and Gage Workman, another former Sun Devil there. Uh, <laughs> Creedler is a former UCLA Bruin. Hello. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. You, you got one in, too. <laughs> um, 
but yeah, even just going down the list, Christian Santana, a lot of people like him. Isaac Pacheco, same deal. They have some interesting names below those top two guys, but it is a very, very top-heavy system with those two, uh, with Riley Green and Spencer Torkelson. So yeah. not that they'll be totally screwed once those two guys graduate, but they will kind of plummet down into the... And I mean, depending on how they draft, how how they develop guys, whatever, can't get too far ahead of ourselves, but it seems pretty likely they'll plummet into like the twenty early 20s, late teens kind of of these rankings once those two guys graduate. Yeah, so those two, that one-two punch, you know, those are high probability, high impact guys, Green and Torkelson. So you figure those guys are probably going to make it. And But then, you know, prior to this, you know, they had some recent graduates all on the pitching side. You know, Matt Manning and Tariq Skubal and the former number one overall pick, uh, uh, Casey Mize. And, and neither, not one of those guys has really, you know, established himself as an ace or even a, you know, they've struggled a little bit and they're still young and they've still got some development time. Um, but the hope was organizationally, okay, we've got a solid top three with those three guys and then we'll work on the position side. And okay, Green and Turkelson are going to cover a couple of holes. But what if those top three pitchers struggle again? And now you're like, oh, now we've got some pitching problems. Um, and so these two, Green and Torkelson, do make it, but then what after that? We've talked about not everybody makes it after that. Maybe Job, who's a uh, high school pitcher, has an injury or whatever. Maybe Dinkler is just sort of okay, and, like, what else you got? So I think they've got some issues here, and I know Tigers fans have been waiting so long for this rebuild to be over, but I'm not sure they're there yet. There's still some question marks here. Definitely. I mean, I they're somewhat comparable to the Royals in terms of having some issues developing pitching. I mean, unfortunately, they developed one very well, Spencer Turnbull, and then he went under the knife, so he'll be out for a while. Uh, but Matt Boyd, injuries and underperformance, and he got non-tendered. I, I agree. It's, it's a definite question mark on the pitching side, and not a whole lot of optimism on the financial side considering what we learned with yeah. Chris Illich being one of the owners against pushing the luxury tax up at all. That makes you think that he's not going to be one of those guys too motivated. He's not, he's not his father. He's not Mike Illich. Yeah. He's not going to be pushing past the luxury tax. Isn't that interesting uh, that, that you could say the same thing about Hall Steinbrenner is not his father. Right. Either. It's, like it's like the, new... the self-made guy who started it all was willing to spend to win and then mm-hmm. is the next generation is a little bit more reserved, a little bit more like, okay, no, I'm pinching pennies. Um, yeah, it's it's a disappointing new era <laughs> of owners. Yeah. Um, but at least on somewhat the bright side financially, um, Miguel Cabrera, first ballot Hall of Famer, but doesn't have it in the tank anymore. He's only yeah. has two more guaranteed years, and then he has two mutual options, which are guaranteed to be declined. Unfortunately, those mutual options come with $8 million buyouts, yeah. which will have to be paid. Yeah. But he's off the books in two years, so that opens up some spending. They did open the checkbooks this offseason for Eduardo Rodriguez, which I think was a smart move. He's only 28. so It's a decent investment there. And also Javier Baez, which is super risky. We talked about that plenty when it happened, so I don't need to get too in-depth on that again. But that's already some future dollars pretty heavily committed, and it makes you question how much room will be in the budget if they do need to spend on pitching to to supplement some of these bats. So we will see. But yeah, I I think it's a fair assessment to be very, very excited about those top two guys and a little, just a little bit concerned about the longer-term complete picture. Mm -hmm. 
All right, we're into the top five, and let's start with the Arizona Diamondbacks at $252 million. So that's a pretty sizable jump from number six, and, uh, 238.7 to 252. By the way, I forgot oh, go to mention, these are all teams that could trade their farmer for Juan Soto. I think the top one, <laughs> <laughs> Juan Soto's at, what, 224 in our model? And so uh, there's only a handful of teams that would actually trade their top 30 for Juan Soto. So you're telling me that Juan Soto would be the 12th most valuable farm system in baseball? Yes, yes. <laughs> the Dodgers and the Yankees could not afford Juan Soto. They don't have enough capital. And obviously there's some error bars there. <laughs> yes, I know. It's, I'm it's kidding. A, but... It's a funny exercise. No team can trade there. And actually, this is just the top 30s. Yeah, so the Dodgers well, okay. and Yankees probably could trade everyone. <laughs> but I... I know what you're saying. Okay. All right. So, yeah. Um, These are the teams now the that, that could trade yeah. for one Soto and still have a few pennies left. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so the D-backs, they've been accumulating a really impressive farm. They've just had trouble getting them to push that last step up to the big leagues. They took some steps forward with that in 2021. Dalton Varsho, Paven Smith, uh, two guys who made it to the show and actually started to establish themselves a bit. Josh Rojas is another interesting guy there. Uh, but there's still plenty of pieces who haven't quite figured that out uh, out that jump yet. And there's a ton of high upside guys waiting in the wings, almost ready to make that step. So Corbin Carroll, Alec Thomas, are they've been two top outfield prospects for the D-backs for a few years now. They're really close to ready, and they're going to be really impressive hitters once they get up there. They've each dealt with uh, – Corbin Carroll has dealt with some injury issues, and because of that it's been kind of a lost couple seasons between injuries and 2020 no minor league season. So we're going to have to see how he looks when he is back. But he and Alec Thomas, very impressive. Those two could be mainstays in the outfield for the D-backs. Jordan Lawler, who was their first-round pick in 2021, also had an injury question. He didn't play a whole lot of last season, but he seems to be 100%, seems to be ready to go, and he's a very impressive shortstop prospect. And then they have a lot of arms. Mm -hmm. uh, Blake Walston, Ryan Nelson, Dre Jameson, Brandon... Fad, P F A A D T. Y'all, y'all tell me how to pronounce yeah. that one. But Bryce Jarvis, and even going a little lower down, Slade Chichoni is is a an high upside name. Tommy Henry, they got a lot going on here, and that's not even to talk about a, a, a potential boom guy in Christian Robinson, who he's had some off field issues that have hurt his value considerably he's down to 3.2 but it wasn't too long ago that he was in the same sentence as corbin carroll and alec thomas and if he gets back to the field and shows his talent again he's right back up there with them and, and that's a huge outfield of the future between those three guys and they've got a whole bunch of other names i could go into farther down i'm a little more in tune with this system since i am living here in arizona uh, but it is really impressive. It's been built for a long time. There was a draft, I want to say two or three years ago, where they just had an insane number of picks within the first, like, 60 or 70 of the draft. Um, and that really helped them restock here. Uh, but there's there are definite reasons for optimism. As an organization, I can see some reasons for concern still, <laughs> just because they don't have a ton established at the big league level. Even if most of these guys hit, it's still going to be an effort to catch up to the Dodgers and even the Padres. And now the Giants are an interesting team at the top of that division as well. They got their work cut out for them for sure. And Ken Kendrick was one of those names that doesn't want to be pushing the, yeah. the CBT threshold any higher. So we'll see what that means. But 
they at least have a really strong foundation here on the farm. And I think we start to see some of these guys really make an impact in 2022 and 2023. I know scouts just love Corbin Carroll. He's always on the top of these lists. He's got great makeup. And even though he's been injured, they keep talking effusively about like, he's got such a great hit tool and such, you know, speed and, and you know, baseball IQ and the whole bit. So, um, Exciting, uh, apparently a very exciting player to come, and and there's a lot of depth behind him. They got six guys in double digits in our model here, and then there's a lot of sort of mid-tier guys below that. So, and I sort of wondering, you know, Carson Kelly was a name that started to pop up in rumors of trade. I think he only has two years of control left, and so maybe, you know, with the catcher market being so thin, maybe they think about trading a guy like him and getting you know even more prospect capital back because they know their window is a little ways away. So I could see them adding to this via trade even more. Yeah, and, and that doesn't even get into whether they trade Cattell Marte. We've talked about oh, that right. extensively and, and kind of, I don't think yeah. they should, but it's definitely a possibility that they could. Um, he, he's really the most, the, the those two are the most logical trade chips from the big league team right now, and they could, you're right, they could add even more to this and kind of readjust their timeline. Yeah, but you can see given, you know, the current state of, you know, there's a big three of Dodgers, Giants, Padres trying to, you know, win it all right now in the in the NL West. And the Diamondbacks are sort of at the bottom of the list, but the uh, the future looks bright. So you can see it sort of flipping in a couple of years where the future team led by Carroll and Thomas and a couple of these pitchers. And, you know, we know not everybody's going to make it, but but you can see a, a future here. There were, they combined with some of the other guys you mentioned who've already been brought up and they've got a core coming. So it's 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 a lot of a lot of exciting times there where you live absolutely i'm looking forward to it now we go to number four and we have the pittsburgh pirates at 272.9 another pretty significant jump here uh they've obviously been in the midst of a pretty lengthy teardown themselves and they've made plenty of high profile trades the last handful of seasons as they try and make a somewhat slow push back to the playoffs um but they definitely have quantity and quality in this farm it's really impressive they have a, an incredible depth of players. They're kind of running out of room to put prospects at this point. Somewhat reminiscent of the Padres from a few years back. Mm -hmm. uh, but headlighting the list is a guy who's really bounced up and down a lot and might be one of the most exciting players in the game right now in O'Neill Cruz. He's gigantic. They're going to try and play him at shortstop. We will see how that works, but he's... I believe he got an 80 in raw power from Fangraphs. Mm -hmm. it's, it's power to dream on. The exit velocity, he's, he hit one ball just insanely hard in his like short debut last season. I forget exactly what the number was, but he hits the ball with so much authority. He's got a good arm. He's athletic. He's just got a little bit of swing and miss in his game. And so he gets that sorted out. He's a superstar. Um, and then obviously there's the first overall pick in last year's draft, Henry Davis, who's a catcher who, who seems pretty polished and he's at least a solid bat if he doesn't stick behind the plate. Um, and then they got middle infielders, Nick Gonzalez, a former first round pick, Leover Peguero, who they got from the D-backs uh, in the original Starling Marte trade. They got arms, Ronzi Contreras, Quinn Priester. They've got Andy Rodriguez, who you mentioned. It, it goes on for a while. They have so many guys worth more than two million who could be, you know, flipped for something or have a chance to to break out and really be another superstar. And that, that's what you get when you acquire so much depth. Here is you're really it's it's like you're buying more lottery tickets. You know, you're you're increasing your odds of at least one or two of these guys really 
booming. You know, you look down the list a little bit. I mentioned Hudson Head a little earlier. He's at 2.4 million, but there's a chance that he goes nuclear next season and we're talking about him in the mid 20s or even 30s or something like that. Jihuan Bay was a really interesting uh, international prospect. We have him at 4.6. He could rise. That, that When you get this many guys who at least have a baseline of could be a utility player or could be a reliever or whatever, that's you're definitely doing a good job of increasing your chances that multiple of them, not just one, multiple of them break out and become real impact prospects down the line. And so they've done a very good job here. And that's before even talking about trading a guy like Brian Reynolds or God forbid, key Brian Hayes. Yeah. This doesn't even include key Brian Hayes who, who's graduated in our model. Um, you know, and, you know, we had uh, Tukavita Marcano, uh, who's farther down the list as well, another graduate, but another guy that got in trade for the uh, Adam, for Adam Frazier. Um, so there's a lot of depth here, as you mentioned. I mean, look, this is sort of by the book. You knew they were going to rebuild a couple of years ago when they traded McCutcheon and, you know, a few other guys. And and they got some, you know, they started the rebuild. And, uh, and a few years down the road now, you know, they brought in Ben Sherrington, who's done a good job doing that. And, uh, and now it's starting to blossom. Um, they're still, you know, a ways away in terms of these guys graduating and really starting to contribute. But, man, they've got an exciting future. Absolutely. And it, it gets to that point, kind of like Jose Ramirez, where it's like, do, do you really need to trade a Brian Reynolds? I mean, mm-hmm. the difference here is none of these guys are quite knocking the door down. I mean, O'Neill Cruz is in the big leagues, and he's going to be absolutely a name to watch next season if, or this season. 2022. If we, if we get a 2022 season watch O'Neill Cruz. Uh, but some of these other guys are still another year or two away. But even then, I believe Ryan, Brian Reynolds has four years of control remaining. So yes, he's he a, And he wasn't a hugely hyped prospect. I don't think he was too high of a draft pick. So maybe you have a slightly better chance at locking him up before he gets too far into arbitration. So I don't know. I think there's a pretty solid argument to be made for hanging on to Reynolds and, and definitely to Brian Hayes. That's It, it seems quite premature to even think about trading him at this point uh but yeah the pirates could be really really exciting and i don't i mean they're they're the highest ranked team in their division in the farm rankings here by a long shot but i i I don't think i see another team in that division with a fantastic long-term picture in terms of talent in terms of finance whatever so i really like their chances to kind of take control of that division in a couple years here yeah Two years from now, Pittsburgh fans finally, <laughs> finally can lose another wild card game. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I like the Pirates. Speaking of teams that have made the playoffs in a while. <laughs> oh, what a transition! It's the Seattle Mariners at number three, but another big jump here. They're at three hundred and three point six. This is where the numbers get silly, and yeah. with the Mariners, you're talking about all right. What if we took the Tigers? And gave them another big prospect and a couple other medium prospects. Like, they have the big one-two punch here with Julio Rodriguez, who's up there with Bobby Witt Jr. and another name we haven't gotten to yet. Not spoiling anything. (laughs) But as the consensus top three prospects in the game right now. Mm -hmm. We have him at 78.2. He's a star. He's big league ready. We'll see him in 2022, barring injury or disaster. He's ready. He's going to be a stud. And then right behind him is Noel V. Marte, who's shot up lists this past year, shortstop, 62.6 in value. That's kind of the Mariners' equivalent of Torkelson and Green. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, but then let's also give him a George Kirby. Let's give him a right-handed pitching prospect who's almost big league ready at 49.9 in value. Insane. Then they got Matt Brash, who's been a big breakout pitcher at 21.4. Brandon Williamson, a breakout pitcher at 15.4. Emerson Hancock, big upside. Hort, Harry Ford, their first-round pick, another catcher. It goes down. They're, they don't quite have the depth. Uh, let me take that back. They don't have anywhere near the depth of a team like the Pirates. But they have so many big pieces here. And that's kind of where it can complicate things a little bit. We've seen them talking about making additions this offseason. I mean, they signed Robbie Ray. I very frequently forget that they signed Robbie Ray because that was 100 years ago. But they're talking about making additions, maybe a trade for Matt Chapman, something along those lines, one of the Oakland starters. Uh, But they don't necessarily have as much in that middle tradable tier of prospects. They have... Julio and Noel Di Marte and George Kirby, who probably shouldn't go anywhere. Mm-hmm. And then a couple guys they probably don't want to trade in Matt Brash and Brandon Williamson since they are bigger risers. Uh, so then you get into, okay, you're trading Emerson Hancock. Maybe you like his upside too much. Or you got a couple outfield prospects, Gabriel Gonzalez and Zach Deloach. Which one of them do you like more? Um, Adam Mako, that's another name that's kind of popped up. But because, yeah, it, it, and that's not to be a knock on the system at all. They have two, three... You, they have three guys who have a pretty decent chance of being a significant major league contributor, if not a star, in Rodriguez, Marte, and Kirby. And they got three more guys in Brash, Williamson, and Hancock that have a really good chance to be a part of a rotation someday. And that's really exciting. Not a lot of teams can say that. Uh, it, it's definitely a top-heavy farm, but it's it's top-heavy with some real talent up top. Yeah. And, um, and they've already graduated uh, Logan Gilbert, who had a pretty decent rookie season last year. So, you know, he's got, you know, and then there's what, four pitchers here uh, near the top of the farm list. So let's say two of them make guys. Now you got a top three rotation plus a couple of position players and, and, you know, Rodriguez and Marte coming. And you've still got some young guys at the major league level. JP Crawford had a sneaky good year. And, you know, so you've got, you've got a core building here, which is exciting for Mariners fans. I think finally, well, I shouldn't say finally, because it wasn't that long ago when they were competitive, but it's been a fairly quick rebuild. And I didn't even mention Jared Kelenic or Kyle Lewis, you know, um, and you know, uh, they had traded for Taylor Trammell, who's kind of fallen off quite a bit, but nonetheless, they've got a lot of pieces here to work with. Um, So this is where you're going. Okay. This is a team. This is, this is a good team that's coming here. So, and, and, you know, they were, you know, in the playoff picture last year, and that's before some of these guys even broke out and matured. So it's just going to get better and better for them. Yeah, Jared Kelnick was a huge deal this time last year, and we're barely even talking about him now. Yeah, he didn't have a great rookie season, but he did kind of turn it on in the second half a little bit. He showed some signs, and he's still very highly regarded. And you mentioned Logan Gilbert. They just have so much to work with here. I don't know if 2022 is their year to break the the drought. I mean, if we're talking expanded playoffs, that makes it much more likely that it is. But they're going to be a force to be reckoned with very soon. And it seems like the AL West is kind of opening up for them. I mean, the Rangers are trying to compete and the Angels are always going to try and figure something out with Trout and Otani and the Astros aren't quite gone yet. But it's there in, I mean, (laughs) we're talking about the third best farm here, plus some really significant young major league pieces they're very clearly in the best long-term position in the AL West. Yeah. All right. Now we're done with every division except the AL East. We got two teams left, both in the East. If you've been paying attention, you know which teams are left, and all we have to do is 
say who is second, and you'll know who is first. Second place is going to be the Tampa Bay Rays at 314.6, which is insane. This team <laughs> just graduated one of the best prospects ever. Uh-huh. <laughs> and some other prospects. That's and not some even, other ones. Yes, that's yeah. not even to mention, oh, you ever heard of uh, Vidal Bruhan? He's pretty good. Uh, how about Taylor Walls? How about Shane McClanahan? How about uh, Shane Baz? Does he count as? Oh, he's still counted as a prospect. Okay. Oh, so is yeah, Bruhan. Yeah. My bad. My bad. I'm yeah. overspeaking a little yeah. bit here. <laughs> so, so those guys are on the verge of being graduated. But still, they just graduated Randy Rosirena not too long ago. Rookie of the year. Taylor Walls. Rasmussen, who yeah. was starting to break out. Luis Patino, who they picked up from the Padres, Patino. who was highly regarded. But yeah, Wander Franco. <laughs> <laughs> so good. Best prospect we've seen in a very long time. They lose him, and oh no, they fell to second place in the prospect ranking. Yeah, so what are they going he, to do? Franco was in the hundreds. Yes, you lose him, and they're still in the three hundreds. And and you know part of that is a testament to their developing. You know, Baz Shane Baz ended up mm-hmm. he's now in like in some of the lists, the top five. You know, mm-hmm. and certainly right up there as you know, if not. The best pitching prospect is certainly one of the two was mm-hmm. Kirby. Um, but even you know, if but... even if Shane Baz graduates, that he's at seventy one point six. Even if you say mm-hmm. okay, he shouldn't count. He's pitched in the big leagues, whatever. That still brings them down to like fifth place. Like that puts them <laughs> just a couple more spots lower. They're still a top five team by far, and this is a team with no money, or at least yep. okay. Allow me to rephrase. This is a team that chooses to spend no money. <laughs> And I guess if you're if you're not going to spend, you kind of have to be really good at this part of it, at the identifying and developing yeah. talent. What... And it just turns out they're one of the best teams. They're arguably the best team in the league at it. And my goodness, we could talk about so many of these guys for so long. Uh, thankfully, I have touched on a lot of them in my roster revamp article on the Rays. Um, but looking past the Shane Baz of it all, there's Josh Lowe, who's looking like the heir apparent in center field, really good. Vidal Bruhan, I think, gets really overshadowed by Wander Franco, but I really like him. Uh, second base only, unfortunately, but mm-hmm. I think he's got a lot of talent there. I I could keep going on this list. Greg Jones, Xavier Edwards, Carlos Colmenares, Seth Johnson has a lot of helium right now. Heriberto Hernandez. Mead broke out. Yes, Curtis Mead was a big breakout. Josh Bradley broke out. They got Cameron Misner from the Marlins yeah. in exchange for Joey Wendell. Uh, mm-hmm. There's there's so much here, and it's every position, and and it's it's otherworldly. <laughs> yeah. Can't. And the thing is, they've done this all while being a really really good baseball team. Spoilers: the team that's ahead of them in the rankings did it by tanking and and losing a lot of games and getting a lot of first few draft picks. The Rays don't do that. They've been a really impressive major league team and developed the second best farm in the game. And it's... Well, you know, yeah, it, it's because they have this constant churn, right? They'll trade veterans for prospects, veterans. For, I mean, but the veterans they're trading have a lot of value because they typically trade them in their third or fourth year, just when they're getting into their RB years, typically. So, which is sort of right around their peak value. So they'll trade they'll trade guys there, and they'll get three or four prospects of which two will start to creep up the list and then they become Shane Bass. You know, like the Archer trade, of course. He was the PTVNL and now he's worth 71.6. Come on. I mean, um, Curtis Mead was traded for a reliever, wasn't he? And then now he's at 20.1 and they just keep doing this. Um, So, 
<clears throat> yeah, I mean, they all almost have the opposite problem. Remember, the Padres had too many prospects, and they had to kind of take a hit. You know, they're just like burning a hole in their pocket because they can't keep everybody. And so this is the Rays. You'll see Ray, the Rays do that, and they, they traded Damas for two pitchers, you know, and it was an overpay um, because they had to clear a spot for, for at the time, Taylor Walls, but then Franco. So, like, they have to sometimes take, actually, even though they're great at trades, sometimes they have to take a hit because they can't fit all these guys in. Yeah, definitely. And, I mean, we might see them make a couple more trades after the lockout. They could use a pitcher. They could, they have a few holes on the, on the roster still. I don't expect them to trade any of these big guys. Definitely not Shane Boz, but, you know, yeah. next few are probably safe too. Josh Lowe, Vidal Brujan, Curtis mm-hmm. Mead. Uh, but that's well, the Bruhan's thing. Bruhan's been yeah. rumored as a trade yeah. chip. Yeah. yeah, because they have such a glut on the middle infield. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But one thing that they do in all these trades is they, it seems like very often they'll, get an interesting prospect back as well. And I mean, it's a lower ranked guy who might only be in the low ones or twos right now, but you look back two years later and it's, Oh my gosh, how did they get this guy? Oh yeah. He was a throw in, in this other trade. Great. Curtis now Mead. he's, yeah, yeah, exactly. Shane Boz, you just said, yeah. <laughs> Play yeah. <him> later. <laughs> John, when's the Chris Archer, this trade in history coming? <laughs> oh my God. I got to work on that. Oh yeah. <laughs> but uh, I don't know. I don't know what else there is to say about the Rays. Just incredible. Okay. Yep. And now, process of elimination one team left first place the baltimore orioles at 324.8 got here in a wildly different manner than than the rays got to their spot Uh, as i mentioned it was a tank job it was a lot of last place finishes (laughs) a lot of first second third overall picks Uh, but credit to them they seem like they've hit on a lot of those picks and they seem like they developed a lot of interesting players along the way they have made a few smart trades to get a few of these guys, but not definitely not as trade-focused. This is largely uh, a draft-develop type team. Mm-hmm. At the top of the list is not consensus number one prospect, but largely number one prospect. I don't know if there's a difference there, but a lot of people think he's the number one prospect. Adley Rutschman, catcher, five-tool guy, makeup off the charts. Seems like a great defensive catcher who's going to hit. He's a switch hitter. He's... Got everything going for him. 89.5 million in trade value. Wow. Yeah. And then they got two strong pitchers. Grayson Rodriguez, who's arguably the top pitching prospect in the game. It's either him or Boz, probably. He's at 63 million. Take a bit of a step back. DL Hall at 29.7. Gunnar Henderson, third baseman at 25.1. Colton Kowser, their 2021 first round pick at 20 million. Outfielder. Jordan Westberg, second baseman at 14 million, and Kobe Mayo, first baseman, 11.9. So those are all those guys over 10, but then it still goes farther than that. And this still isn't quite as deep of a farm as the Pirates or even even the Guardians have, uh, but they make up for it. They have a lot of these, they have a good number of guys in the three, four, five, six range uh, who could break out or could be trade chips down the road or whatever. And they just have so much star level talent at the top here. Um, that, you know, it's, it's a similar story where even when they graduate Rutschman, they're going to drop, oh no, all the way to like seventh, eighth, ninth, somewhere in that range. Mm-hmm. So it, it's really impressive. Uh, Rutschman, I think is, I, I don't know if it's possible for people to be sleeping on him since he is kind of the number one prospect, but I don't think people are ready for how good of a game he can play and how good of a, how valuable of a player he can be. And I think people there are some people who are going to be expecting him to be Mike Piazza and they're going to be disappointed. But I think pretty immediately at a young age, he's going to step in and be able to control a staff and just be good at everything. And even if he's not a superstar at anything, 
he's going to be so valuable and he's going to be, I, I like catchers a lot. He's going to be really fun to watch. Yeah. So, I mean, not, he doesn't get talked about as much because maybe because he's on the Orioles. Like if you were on the Yankees, can you imagine the hype you'd be getting? Oh man. <clears throat> um, so that's, yeah, I just want a couple of, this is after the, the number one, you know, farm in baseball corn drum model. This is after a couple of busts. Like Uniel Diaz was the lead piece in the Machado trade a couple of years ago, and he's down to 1.1 looking like a bust. Um, I won't say um, Heston Kierstead is a bust. He was their top draft pick a couple of years ago, and he's had some health issues, some heart issues in particular, which is a little bit scary, which is why he's dropped down quite a bit. Um, and, you know, they traded Dylan Bunty to the Angels a couple of years ago for four pitchers. You know, those couple of those guys are still sort of, you know, creeping up, but, you know, it was not really a, a top guy there. So, like, they could have done better even than those situations, and they have, but they're still the number one farm in baseball despite that. Yeah, definitely. And that's where you can kind of see that this is this spot in the rankings for the Orioles is more of a timing thing, a circumstance thing than it is necessarily a process thing and not to knock them at all. You know, there's been plenty of first overall picks who didn't turn into Adley Rutschman and there's been plenty of top pitching prospects who didn't turn into Grayson Rodriguez and give the Orioles some credit for that. But I even if they're 10 million behind, still much rather be the Rays than the Orioles here um, just because they, they seem to have a constant churn and to constantly be near the top of these lists. You know, it seems like the lowest a team like the Rays or the Dodgers will ever go is like into that 15, 16 range. Uh, the, the, it seems like they'll always have a top half farm system. Whereas the Orioles a few years from now, they graduate these guys. I could see them being back near the bottom. Well, it's just interesting because Michael Elias hasn't been the GM for all that long. That's also true. He came, yes, he came from the Astros, who did the same thing. Obviously, they tanked, they rebuilt, they won the World Series. So the plan here is pretty much a blueprint of that: tank, rebuild. You know, let's hope for him. You know, that's where he gets to. But then after that, what? So let's see what happens. Is, are they going to are they going to develop that sort of raised sort of turn thing because they are a smaller market team, or is it just going to be in cycles like that? So we'll see. Yeah, and you mentioned before that they were kind of late entrance to international mm -hmm. uh, free agent market, and so obviously that could – the international free agent market could disappear altogether if there's a draft now, but uh, their renewed focus in that area could that, – that process tends to take a little bit longer since those players are so much younger and need so much more development, uh, but we could maybe see the fruits of that labor within the next few years show up in the farm system. Yeah, there's a couple of guys that showed up on their fan graphs list that um... – because they were recent uh, sort of, I don't know if they were recent um, signings or what, but Leandro Arias and Cesar Prieto, uh, we have at 5-4 and 4-9 respectively. Um, I don't think Baseball America got to them yet because maybe they were just brand new to the organization, but they were the first two examples of that international system starting to bear some fruit. So we'll see how they develop. I do know Prieto is kind of an interesting one. He's an older guy, uh, might be... MLB ready this year or next year, mm -hmm. uh, kind of more of a contact-oriented second baseman who should be really interesting. Uh, so he's he was one of the more unique international free agents available this time around. But okay. uh, your point definitely still stands. Mm -hmm. John, we did it. I definitely jinxed us by saying we were good on time because, oh, <laughs> boy, were we not good on time. <laughs> All right. Well, we've learned our lesson. Have <laughs> so we? Many... <laughs> Have we? We we say this every time <laughs> that next time yeah, will be better. So. And 
Hold on, we need to figure something we, out. We here. were rolling there for a while, but okay. we were. Yes, we we just <laughs> had too much fun talking prospects. Yeah. Well, all right. Those of you who stuck around, I hope you did enjoy this episode. But that'll do it for this week. Thank you all so much for listening. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us an email at baseballtradevalues at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at baseballvalues. Also, be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. We'll be back in a couple weeks to break down more news and updates. So until then, stay safe and enjoy the offseason. Enjoy the lockout as much as you can, I guess. <laughs> Fingers crossed as hard as they'll cross for a deal or something to come out of this next couple weeks. Yeah, knocking on wood as hard as we can. All right. On that happy note, <laughs> thanks, John. <laughs>